You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. You must have a Bethesda.net account to continue. Please log into the internet. No, I refuse. <laughs> Then you're not playing Doom. No. Uh, actually, I am. Uh, just, just not well, on modern consoles. <laughs> oh, God. I, I don't think I've ever had a situation where I've gone from, yes, this is brilliant, to, um, <laughs> in as short a time as I have yesterday. Oh, why? Why? Why have they done this? I just don't understand. For, for anyone just catching up, although I think if you've been on the internet for the last day, then you you probably know already. But um, Bethesda sort of stealth drops um, the original Doom, Doom Two, and Doom Three on modern console platforms uh, yesterday, presumably as part of Doom's twenty fifth anniversary celebrations, because QuakeCon's going on right now. Um, and yeah, great. Everyone was very excited to have Doom readily accessible on modern platforms, particularly on Switch, because it meant you could have a portable version of Doom that didn't suck. Um, and then what they did is they went and required you to log in to their stupid online service in order to even play it. For a game with no online features whatsoever. Zero online features. Yeah. yeah. Not even no like scoreboards and stuff, right? No, yeah, no leaderboards, no scoreboards, no online stat tracking, no online multiplayer. Stage builder with sharing capabilities, none of the above. No, no none of that. You just have to log in because... I don't know. Because 2019, <laughs> that's why. Yeah. So there you go. So Bethesda have quite rightfully been getting a bit of uh, a bit of flack for that. And uh, it has spawned some quite entertaining memes. I, I normally tire of topical memes within about five minutes, but there have been some very good ones surrounding this one. There's been like... Um, uh, the conversation between Richter and um, Dracula at the start of um, Symphony of the Night with Dracula's speech just being, you must have a Bethesda account to continue and all that sort of thing. So there's been some quite entertaining stuff come out of that. But uh, yeah, so that kind of sucks. Um, but there we go. That is life in 2019 for for everyone. Triple A, baby. Triple A. Triple A. Triple A. <sighs> anyway, um, so... Today's main topic is going to be arcade races, uh, which seems to have been quite a hot topic recently because um, someone I support on Patreon uh, has just done a very good video on Lotus's Brie Turbo Challenge, which we'll probably mention later, and um, someone who I've come into contact with after Digitize the Live, which I will talk a little bit about later on as well, has also just done a very good video on Outrun and the various different ports of that available. Mm. So it is apparently uh, International Arcade Racer Weekend. Summer uh, is the perfect time for racing games. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so so we thought we'd have a chat about those today. So that will be our third segment today. Uh, as usual, we'll kick off with the news, followed by a bit of talk about what we've been playing lately. So let us begin with a fairly moribund collection of news, shall we? Mm. Um, where to begin? Where to begin? Monster Rancher is getting a port to modern consoles. The, oh, origi yes. the original Monster Rancher. Yes. So, uh, I don't know this game at all, but I, I remember its existence, but I don't know anything about it. Did you play this at all? Oh, yes. I was a freaking fiend for the original Monster Hunter. Um, <laughs> so, ma mainly the thing about the original Monster Hunter that everyone loved back in the day was you could put a CD into your PlayStation, 
and then it would, oh, it that would, was this it, one yeah. yeah and it would read the cd and then based on whatever information it got off that cd it would give you a, a monster with various stats and attributes mm-hmm. based on the data on the cd uh, yeah. it was tremendous i just remember spending hours upon hours doing this um in retrospect the the actual game of the original monster hunter is kind of painful <laughs> uh, it's a it's a raising sim, so it's more yeah. like it's the meat of the game is more like one of those like princess raising visual novels, right? Like all you do okay. is like you have your monster on your little ranch, and it's like, what do you want to do today? Do you want to send the monster to chop wood? That'll build strength, but take down from his agility, and like you have to make like those decisions, right. and it's like, okay, you have two months until the next tournament, like, and then you have to bide your time and do these things, keep it fed, okay. etc. Um, but then the actual combat is this really painful, just like rock, paper, scissors kind of thing. Right. Where there's no real strategy involved, and it's kind of frustrating. Okay. But, um, I mean, Monster Hunter's huge. There's loads of games in the franchise. There was an animated series. Like, for a long time, this franchise was, was pretty big. Yeah, it's it's been pretty dormant for a while, hasn't it? I, I'm not aware of anything that's there's certainly not none of it has come west. If there has any, been any of them, for I yeah, I can't think of there being one since the PS2. Yeah, I think four or five on the PS2 was was the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this this new release is is going to be a port of the first one from the release sound from the sound of things, uh, which yes. was the the PS1 version that originally came out in 1997. So, um. Yeah, no, no actual news on what form that's going to take, if it's going to be enhanced or if it's going to be a straight port or anything like that. And we don't even know what platforms it's going to be for just yet. But uh, yeah, that will be on the way at some point this year from Curry Techno. And it sounds like it's going to be a, um, a downloadable game rather than one that's getting a, a package release. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh-huh. So I'm curious how, if at all, they're going to emulate that aspect of the game, the CD aspect of the game. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's literally it's not just a thing you do in the game; it's baked into its lore. Yeah. So yeah. like the like in the game, it's presented as like archaeologists discover these ancient stone discs, and yeah. that's how the, and that's how the monsters are brought into the world. Right. Yeah. And, and the joke is that that's what you're doing with the CDs. Like you're an archaeologist, and the, these are the discs you've unearthed. Let's see yeah. what monsters are on them. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Who knows how they're gonna kind of emulate that experience or bypass it altogether. I mean there is ways to get monsters in the game without the CDs, yeah. but the 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 diversity of monsters you can get through those means is not nearly as, you know. Yeah, and I and I mean I thought I thought that would have been a, a core appeal of the original as well. It's sort of exchanging stories with your friends is like oh I, I put a madonna cd in and this happened and or oh, i put another cd in and this happened and so on and sort of exchanging right. stories like that that's right or, or you know and it, it and it turned into buying cds as part of enjoying the game more so it was like yeah. you got if you got an album from your favorite band like you weren't just excited to get that album from your favorite brand you were also excited to bring it home and also see what it gave you in monster rancher <laughs> like it, it yeah. became a whole thing it was it was a ton of yeah. fun yeah, there were a few games on PS One that did that as well, weren't there? There was Vib Ribbon as well, which you could then play the music tracks from the album as um, sort of rhythm action stages as well. So yes, yeah, it was quite quite a common thing on the PS One era. But uh, an aspect of things we've we've kind of lost a bit these days because I mean, I mean I know the the PS Four won't read CDs. I'm not even sure it'll read DVDs. If I no, it does. Correctly. 
Oh, I'm, pretty it sure does, I'm pretty sure I've watched. Yeah, because it's a it's just a standard Blu-ray player. It, so it'll. I think I've watched DVD movies on yeah. on my PS4 for sure. Yeah. Okay, I I know it won't be CDs though. So so yeah. like that wouldn't be a, a thing you'd be able to sort of do in its original form on on the PS4 certainly. Uh, and obviously the Switch doesn't have a disc drive. So, <laughs> but yeah, I I mean there, there have been sort of alternative approaches to to this sort of thing. I mean, there's been games out there that have used like MP3s for using. Um, for creating tracks and that sort of thing they've mostly been music games but there have been a couple of other examples like beat hazard which created uh shoot 'em up stages from audio tracks and that sort of thing as well so i mean it's it's there are other ways of doing it but uh i guess it's a case of uh, how much effort they want to put into this port really whether they want to sort of find some alternative to that or just sort of quietly forget it was there <laughs> sure sure yeah, it's just it's just so surprising to me because of the extent to which the core of this game is tied to this mm. technology and methodology. It's like So yeah, can't wait to see what happens with that. Alrighty. Uh moving on. So there's a new Sega Ages game on the way, uh which is gonna be Columns Two. Um Just looking at the details for this. So this is um so as the Sega Ages release, this obviously includes a few sort of additional features over and above the original. Columns 2 is actually one that isn't quite as well known, if I remember rightly, isn't it? Because Columns 1 and Columns 3 came out in the Mega Drive, and Columns 2 seems notably absent from a lot of places. Um, I forget why that is, but um, yeah, so this is kind of an interesting choice. Uh, it looks as if the original Columns is also being included with Columns 2. So... Um, and it's the same version of Columns that was part of Yakuza 0, from the sound of things. Oh. Um, so, I mean, that's probably just going to be a fairly straight arcade port. Um, and the new features will, I imagine, mostly be confined to Columns 2. Apparently it includes new difficulty options, online versus options, rankings, um, and an option where if you're playing it in tabletop mode, you can flip one player's screen upside down, so you can lay it down on the table and sit across from each other. Oh, that's really that's cool. cool. Yeah, that's quite nice. Um, yeah, other than that, it's uh, it's columns. So matching gems, creating jade reactions, always a good time. Mm-hmm. I, I like columns a lot. It's mm. one I was never very good at, but I like it a lot. Yeah, whole, it's just it's the whole vibe that, of it. It's one that I didn't really play much back when it was current, but I've sort of come to appreciate it a lot more since. Um, Particularly since sort of playing it on the more recent Mega Drive compilations, like the one that they did for PS4 and Switch a while back, there's mm-hmm. um, sort of Columns One and Col- Columns Three in there, and they're both a good time. So, I just like um, the, the whole like ancient world aesthetic that it has yes, going yes, on. Yes, that's really nice. Yeah, there's uh, there's an interesting port in the Sega Ages collection for PS2 as well that adds a really weird story mode to it. Um, <laughs> it's uh, like got this sort of cute girl exploring a pyramid and fighting off spiders by playing columns against them, and it's yeah, that's that's quite fun as well. It sounds adorable. Yes, yes, it is pretty pretty adorable. Okay, moving on. Uh, Shigesato Itoi's company says that Mother Four is still open for others to make it. Um, so I I I really don't know the Mother series at all, and I don't. I kind of don't understand the appeal. I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast before, but I really hate the artwork in these games. Yeah, I don't so like I, I, I don't like Mother either. I know I'm so going to be crucified for it, but I really don't yeah, like Mother either. I, I, but I mean, that's that sort of put me off to to the point that I don't really know a lot about the the games in general. So, but I know that I know they're a big deal to people. So people are are, are pretty interested in it. So, um, 
It looks as if this this was a conversation in a Japanese magazine called Nintendo Dream. Um, so previously they said that Mother 4 was not being released, but they opened to the idea of people making it for them, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So the last yeah. installment in the series we had was Mother 3 on GBA. There was also another story about this this week, I think, as well, which was, yeah. um, wasn't it someone from Nintendo was sort of uh, wanting to know from fans what they want to see from the the Mother or the Earthbound series. But Yeah, and like I, I had shared with you too, like a week or so ago, that there was that really interesting interview with the guys over at Monolith Soft, and it, oh, tur- yes. and it turned out that... Um, folks from Nintendo had actually gone to Monolith Soft kind of quietly and asked them to produce a proof of concept for a new mother for the GameCube. Right. Um, way back in the day. And they had, and they actually shared a, sc- a screenshot of that proof of concept they had done. And it had a really cool claymation aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was just like, nah, Nintendo was like, let's not do this. But like that, that discussion was what actually opened the door for the relationship between Nintendo and Monolith Soft that led to, um, Bot and Kaidos being GameCube yeah. exclusive, which was really the beginning of the relationship between Nintendo and Monolith. So oh, th- there's been a lot of really cool discussions around Mother mm. lately. Like, I don't love the games, but like, it's a really important part of game history. And like, oh yeah, it, definitely. Yeah. For some reason, weird stuff seems to grow around mother whenever it's like part of the discussion there's like interesting mm-hmm. stuff always comes to light about it yeah it's, it always kind of surprises me that nintendo seems to be so resistant to do stuff with it because it, it's been something that people have been talking about for a long time sort of ever since i guess smash brothers um sort of reminded people of its existence mm-hmm. um people have, have sort of been saying that they want mother and yes we got that port of earthbound on wii u um on virtual console but it's kind of been pretty quiet since then so but yeah it just sort of surprised me that they don't do more with this because there's obviously obviously a hunger for it and um again i haven't played undertale either but i think there's a certain amount of crossover between undertale and, and mother fandoms as well from what i understand as well so oh yeah, um, yeah it's very Undertale's very specifically attempting to emulate kind of what Mother yeah. does, but I don't know. I, I much prefer Undertale. I don't like. I said I don't care for Mother, but I'll, I'll talk yeah. about Undertale all day if you let me. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. Uh, moving on, uh, we got a little bit more news about Streets of Rage Four. We got confirmed that Yuzo Koshiro is involved along uh, with Motohiro Kawashima and a whole bunch of other people. Uh, so there are. Uh, Yokoshima Shimomura is involved as well. Hideki Naganuma and Keiji Yamagishi. So that is a real all-star lineup of uh, of musicians there. It's tremendous. So, yeah. So between them, they've worked on stuff like Street Fighter 2, Kingdom Hearts, Super Mario RPG, Legend of Mana, Parasite Eve, Jet Set Radio, all sorts of things. So yeah, this this should hopefully have a very good soundtrack, um, which is uh, which is good. So and Yuzo Koshiro seems to sort of be. Um, kind of leading the sound team, but then they're going to have the the opportunity to sort of develop their their own individual styles from the sound of things as well. And it, from what I've read of various comments from him, it sounds like they're going to sort of take an approach where it sounds reasonably authentic to the original, but they're not going to deliberately limit themselves to sort of old school instruments and so on. So, so they're going to use a sim- similar compositional style, but kind of more modern technology to build on that. So. Mm-hmm. Should be good. Should be good. 
Yeah, I mean, hopefully the game is good. <laughs> right, like, I'm not super convinced still. Yeah, well, there's there's been a few more sort of screenshots and videos uh, creeping out uh, a bit at a time. It, it is looking pretty nice, but uh, yeah, I mean, time will tell, I guess. Um, with uh, sort of a, di a different team making this to the past games, uh, they've certainly got their work cut out for them. But uh, yeah, I'm quietly hopeful for the minute. Alright, uh, continuing on, the first Majin Tensei on Super NES has got the fan translated into English. So this was uh, sort of the predecessor to the Megami Tensei franchise. Um, and uh, a fan group called DDS Translation has finished their fan translation for it now, which means that they have now done every Megami Tensei game on the Super NES. So you can now play all of those in English, which is cool. Very cool. Do you know much about this game at all? Not really. Um, I do know that it's more of a strategy game than what we typically yeah. expect from the from a Shin Megami Tensei game. Um, mm -hmm. So it actually hues a bit closer to the Devil Survivor games on the on the DS and 3DS, okay. uh, which are great games. But um, yeah, I just I just think it's really cool because. Shin Megami Tensei is a series, like, yes, we did get Persona 1 and 2 on the PlayStation 1 in the West, but, like, mm -hmm. they really just went under the radar and didn't get noticed, so yeah. I, I like to talk about the Shin Megami Tensei series because, really, it didn't boom in the States until everyone decided Persona 3 was good mm -hmm. uh, on the yeah. PS2, and, and, well, I guess a lot of people like Nocturne as well, which was Shin Megami Tensei 3, but... Mm -hmm. Really, Persona, Shin Megami Tensei didn't pick up in the West until Persona 3 on the PS2. Yeah. So it's cool to remind people how long this series has actually been around. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there's, game, there's games on the Famicom as well. Mm -hmm. Like, just like the prototypes of this series, like that would, what it would become. Like, I'm in the process right now of actually combing through old sprites from the Famicom games to see if I can't find anything worth painting. Oh, cool. Just because the monsters just are still iconic, even even in those old yeah. eight bit forms. Yeah. So it's just it's great. It's great to explore this series' history and and remind people that it's been around forever, long before waifus were mm. part of the mix. Yeah, definitely. And it's yeah. I, I was just going to say it's it's a very interesting series because it's quite different from a lot of the style of RPGs we get today with uh, with sort of it's it it. it the way it focuses on different things and its art style and its its kind of atmosphere about it it's uh, quite a different thing i i certainly didn't become aware of it until persona 3 um which came out even later in europe than it did in the states so mm. yeah I, I was quite a late coming to the series and i still haven't really explored anything outside persona but um yeah definitely a series i want to know a bit more about well hopefully when five comes out on the switch it'll be a great jumping on point for traditional yes. shin mega 10 because I, I prefer traditional Shin Megaten to Persona. Not that I don't love Persona, but uh, but mm -hmm. I do I do prefer just like the darkness and the horror and the nihilism of yeah. regular Shin Megaten. Because there's nothing really else out there like it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Alright, continuing. Uh, the upcoming Metal Wolf Chaos from From Software. Um, it seems you'll be able to get physical copies of this at GameStop. Um, and they're going to cost... $29.99 which is a little bit more than the digital release uh, and the physical versions are also going to come out a little bit later than the digital release so it's looking like August the 20th for this retail release as opposed to August the 6th for the downloadable version so 
Um, yeah, if you do want a hard copy of that, get yourself down to GameStop, I guess. Uh, if you don't live in the States, uh, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, S- Special Reserve Games is also going to be selling it. So, uh, oh, that's cool. The, okay. like Game- GameStop is the retail presence, but right. if you're willing to pay the shipping, you should be able to pre-order a copy from Special Reserve once they open, cool. once they open their pre-orders. This is just awesome cool. because this game has never been released in the West before. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, fa- I know, quite, I, fa- quite famously, it's a game. It's a game lampooning American culture, and yeah, and yet it didn't, <laughs> and, and yet it didn't make it west. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yes, some might say that American culture is ripe for lampooning right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, always uh, has been. To be fair, yeah, but, uh, true. But yeah, this is this is great, and, and what I love about this is it's an opportunity for people whose familiarity with From Software only comes from the recent decade mm-hmm. to yeah. to remember that they made all they've made all kinds of games in their history and they yeah. they were also masters of the mecha game for <laughs> many, many years, what with Armored Core and Morikumo and Chrome Hounds and they've just always had their hands in, in great mecha games. So yeah. it's very exciting to finally be able to play this. Mm-hmm. Go. Cool. All right, uh, continuing on, it seems that we're getting a port of Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz HD for Switch, PS4, and PC. Um, and that w- has been confirmed for worldwide release as well. Um, so that is coming on October the 29th from the Sound of Things, which is actually slightly before the Japanese release on October the 31st. And the PC release is coming later in the year. Uh, and there'll be physical releases of this. So Banana Blitz was the one on the Wii, wasn't it, I think, if I remember yeah, correctly? Yeah, yeah. Which is I've interesting. Not played that one. Um, yeah, yeah, I've not played that one. My my experience with Super Monkey Ball is mostly with the original one, I think, on the GameCube, mm-hmm. and which, yeah. and whichever one they ported to Xbox. I can't, I can't, was that the original or the second one? Uh, I, I don't remember. remember. Yeah, um, but yeah, so certainly we used to play a lot of um, a lot of the multiplayer modes on the Xbox version, like Monkey Target and stuff. That was that was always a good laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the originals for sure. I didn't. Yeah, definitely. I didn't love Banana Blitz on the Wii, but that was because I didn't love the motion controls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if this is literally a port and it's going to have the same tables but revised with full analog play, so I can play it like a traditional Monkey Ball game, like I, I can't wait to revisit yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it sounds as if this is having a bit of additional content over the original as well. So it's not just a straight port. So there's going to be a mode where you can play through ten of the mini games in a row. Uh, there's going to be online leaderboards um, for both time attack and score attack, and yeah, I mean it. I mean it looks like Super Monkey Ball, which is cool. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a while since the last one of these, isn't it? I think, if I remember rightly, long Can't, time. Yeah, so I think the last ones were prob. Wasn't that one on Vita? I think. I want to say think. yes. Yeah, I, I I don't think there's been one since then, if I remember correctly, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Been a while for this series, so it'd be nice to make a return because it's uh, it's good fun, good fun. According to Wikipedia, the last Super Monkey Ball was Super Monkey Ball Bounce on Android in 2014. Before yeah, that, 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 yeah, that yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Before that was Super Monkey Ball Banana Splits, which was the Vita version. Right. That was 2012. So that was seven years ago. Oh, um, there was. <laughs> There was a 3DS version in 2011, an arcade version in 2011, and then all for the Wii. 
an yeah. iOS. Yeah, so it's it's been a solid. Even if you count that Android version, it's been a solid five years since we've seen a monkey mm-hmm. ball game. I mean, not that this yeah. is really a new one, but it's it's got enough new content and enough revisited stuff to really justify the purchase. Yeah. Especially if, like me, you didn't like the original Banana Blitz because you hated the stupid motion controls. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, continuing on. Um, we have got some new details on the new Sucker Wars game for PS4. And there was a bit of a surprise in that uh, it seems like it's going to be an action RPG. Yeah, it sure is. Hmm. Are you one of the people who's not sure about this? I'm uh, sensing, a, sensing a bit of tension there. Uh, I'm going to play it. I'm sure it's going to be good. Um, I'm not angry is not the right word. Um, confused and disappointed, perhaps. Because mm-hmm. uh, I want it to be a strategy game. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I don't. It's one of the reasons I like Sakura Wars is its fusion of strategy role playing with dating sim elements. So, mm-hmm. um, like, it, it looks good. It looks fun. It looks like something I want to play. But like classic, like I wouldn't be thinking twice about this if it was a new franchise, right? Like, yeah. so I, I don't Sakura Wars on it, yeah. r- right? But it's like, is it Sakura Wars? Like, I don't, I don't know what's going <laughs> on. But no, it looks great. Can't wait to play it. A little disappointed. But especially yeah. because this series has so little footprint in the West. Uh-huh. We only got one game translated. Yeah. And um, I want more proper Sakura Wars in English. I want to be able to play a proper strategy, more proper strategy Sakura Wars in English. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's cool. I-, I want it. I want to play it. I'm going to enjoy this game on its own terms, no matter what happens. But mm-hmm. um, I do wish it was a strategy game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about this series, so it's I'm not really sure what to make of this. Uh, I've watched the the battle train. It does look cool. It does look like the sort of um, the sort of action combat that I enjoy, and the graphics are neat, and the girls are cute. The girls are designed by the character designer of um, Kaon and Lucky Star. Um, for those interested in such things, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, good good design pedigree there, certainly um, from the perspective yeah, of making cute girls. Girl yeah um also for anyone who's a sakura wars fan uh sumare kanzaki is back um who is one of like the original girls and she and she's like older and in like a mentor role oh okay which is so like sumare kanzaki was just the class it was the um what's the term she was the sundere she she was like well himedere i guess she was the like super hoity-toity like rich Right, like I, I'm too good for you. Like nose up at you, girl. Mm-hmm. From the first two games, um, she was awesome, and now she's back. So it's cool. It's cool that they're exploring the continuity of the series by keeping mm-hmm. them all continuously linked, which is something the series has always done. It's always been in the same world and in the same timeline. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so people who have been following it will sort of get something from it, certainly. Yes, yeah. But uh, presumably, presumably, each one sort of stands by itself as well. So, yeah. So it's usually the whole point of Sakura Wars is that like they have to assemble these groups mm-hmm. of like young people to fight the monsters or whatever. Um, and it's like only through exploration of like drama and the performative arts that they can unlock like the full potential of these people. So they always are. They always are a theater troupe, mm-hmm. 
as well as being giant robot pilots. Remind, so remind me, remind me why I haven't played this yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like the, the the social elements are the social elements are like managing the theater troupe and like building your relationships with with the other characters, which mm-hmm. then affects the way the combat plays out. Yeah. Um, so that the the every new entry is just based around the idea of like, okay, we need to establish a theater troupe here. Like, so, like, uh, three was about establishing a troop in Paris. Uh, four, which is the one we got in the West, was about establishing the first American group. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what it's all about. So they, they just kind of use that to explore the idea of new cultures, new characters, but connecting it all to the same continuity. Um, I think what's interesting about this new one is it's back in Japan. It's like we need to refresh the Japanese troop. Yeah, because I think that the one main girl is a descendant of Sakura, like the main girl of one and two. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's all tied together, but always built uh, built into it naturally is the ability to explore kind of new stories and new people by establishing new groups all around the world. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, one one I will definitely take a look at when it uh, when it shows up then. All right. Um, continuing on, uh, we've had uh, confirmation from D3 publisher that Omega Labyrinth Life is coming west and very soon. Uh, it's coming out on the 1st of August um, as a downloadable game uh, for Switch and uh, kind of for PS4. <laughs> yeah, the PS4 um, version. Oh, to be fair, though, I'm even considering getting the PS4 version. Ooh. Because I make people happy with that statement. Uh, <laughs> people, I is it, people I won't make happy with that statement are the people I don't care whether or not I make happy with that statement. <laughs> as soon as they told me that the that the PS4 version didn't have like the touch interaction mini games, I was like, uh-huh. yeah, I hate that shit. Not from like a <laughs> not from a like oh no boobies standpoint. I just literally hate that shit. I think it mm-hmm. makes I think it it adds nothing to gameplay. Mm-hmm. It's just in the way. Like uh, like I loved um. The Moero Chronicles series. What's the card battle one that was on the oh, Vita? Um, uh, um, I can't remember, but yeah, I know the one you mean. And you had like jerk your Vita off, yeah. and like I remember, you know, I like I love hentai and I, I love erotic Japanese character design. Like I'm not even afraid to talk about it out loud. Like, see, so it has nothing to do with the sexualized elements of it. It is literally like it wasn't fun to do. Yeah, yeah, like it, it, that stuff doesn't lend anything to these games to me. So like, I kind of like the idea of an alternate version that I can buy that I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Monster Mon Piece is what you're thinking of. Yes, yes, and yes. it's a great Monster Mon Piece is a great game. The card, mm-hmm. the card battle game is fantastic, but I hate those stupid touchscreen elements. <laughs> yeah. I've never had a problem with them personally, but uh, yeah, I can understand why people don't like them. They, they, yeah, particularly sort of if you if you're playing in public or whatever, some people get a bit funny about them. Uh, but yeah, I've been fortunate enough to never be around people who have a particular issue with it. So yeah, I, I, like, like I said, for me, it's not even about that. It's, it's just literally, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's literally a mechanical thing. Yeah, like I, you, I just, you just this, this isn't this isn't a fun element for this game. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so, so basically, um, what is happening is that there are two separate releases with different names. So the Switch version is called Omega Labyrinth Life because the Omega symbol looks a bit like a pair of tits. Um, and the PS4 version is just called Labyrinth Life. 
Um, and so yeah, it is missing a selection of features. So specifically, um, it skips a feature called Full Bloom Break and Size Up Illustrations, ignores touching event scenes, and opts for specific controls during rock, paper, scissors sections. Whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> so, if that me- so if you've read up on this game and that means anything to you, that's what's different in the PS4 version. So ba- basically, it's, it's, it's missing some content um, in terms of the sort of um the sort of etchy stuff but the the game itself will be intact uh including the mechanics in the main roguelike gameplay so yeah i mean um the option is there for for that version if you want uh other than that uh if you want the the complete experience then the um the switch version is there and i think they said there's going to be a pc version later as well or maybe that was just conjecture Uh, oh that would be great story now um no, so that hasn't been confirmed yet, but but people were saying that. I mean, let's face it; it's it's pretty likely, given the sort of trajectory of a lot of Japanese console releases these days, it will probably end up on PC at some point. So I think it's a safe assumption, especially games like this specifically. Yeah. yeah. So, like, for people who don't know why this is significant, besides like the the fraught history of this game over the past two years or so of it getting of different versions of it, either getting approved and then unapproved, getting release dates and then getting cancelled. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this game is worth playing because people from Climax worked on this game. Yes, yes, it's, ma- uh, it's Matrix software, so uh, the people who made games like Alundra um, and, and that kind of thing back in the PS1 days, so yeah, they're still going and this is this is what they've made most recently. So, Landstalker. Yeah, yeah, there's a great pedigree of people behind this, so um yeah yeah normally i do not really buy into these he heavy games i don't really like roguelites roguelikes <laughs> but i'm interested in this just specifically because these are people who've worked on so many wonderful games yeah yeah the, P- the ds port of final fantasy 4 Mm-hmm. Um, nostalgia, which I know I've talked about many times on this podcast before for the DS. Yes. Yeah, yes. just I love these guys. I love Matrix. Yeah, uh, people people I've spoken to have played the previous Omega Labyrinth games in Japanese have said that they're 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 pretty solid roguelike games as well. So sort of very very much following the sort of mystery dungeon mold, but they they often incorporate. Um, some sort of other mechanics on the side so for example this one has got like a fairly significant um, kind of gardening element from the sound of things where you sort oh, of cute. As, as well as uh, as well as exploring the dungeons and so on you sort of managing this big garden and, and stuff and that presumably gets you benefits in various ways as well so yeah there's there's stuff besides dungeon crawling in it as well no I definitely I definitely want to give this a play I'll probably end up importing the physical version for the switch from play Asia yeah um I've been doing a lot of importing from PlayAsia lately. <laughs> yeah, I, I might consider that as well because I, I I'm looking at the the European eShop page now and it's it's fifty three ninety nine for the uh, download only version. So for that price, I kind of want a cartridge on my shelf. Yeah. So yeah, I will I will I will probably grab the um, the import version uh, because I mean it'll be the same. It's the same localization and everything. It's not as if like a different team worked on the European version to the. Uh, Asia English version. So you could save yourself some freight and pre-order it at the same time with Onanaki because the, oh that the, that's not getting a physical release in the West either. Oh okay, mm. okay, yeah, might do that. Tokyo RPG Factory. Yes, good stuff. That game All was right. great. Uh, continuing on, we've already talked about Doom. Not a lot else I want to say about that aside from 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunate. I want to play Doom. I want to play yeah. Doom. Yeah. Uh, I was so excited. I was like, yes, I'll be able to play Doom at lunchtime. That'll be amazing. We were both uh, screaming that- about it when you told me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to, be, to be clear, it's not that it completely stops you playing altogether. Um, so what, what happens if you don't have a Bethesda account... Um, what happens is the first time you start it up, it asks you to sign in or create an account. Um, and if you don't have a Bethesda account, as I didn't, because I don't really play Bethesda games, um, y- as you sign up, you create your account, you give them your email address and everything. You, you have to page through three lots of terms of service and codes of conduct and all that sort of thing. Um, as one little throwaway comment during this process, it says, um, you'll need to confirm your email address. And then it doesn't mention that again. Um, and what happens after that is if you are, until you confirm your email address by going into your email, clicking on it, so on your computer or on your phone or something like that, until you do that and you finish your account creation on uh, your computer or phone, every time you start up Doom, it will complain and it will refuse to let you in until you log into Bethesda.net. After you have confirmed your email address and logged into Doom one more time, you can then play it offline, albeit still with an error message saying some features may be unavailable without a connection to Nintendo Switch Online. Which is still shit, but it's not quite as shit as it initially appeared. <laughs> Remember it, when you could just play video games? Yeah, yeah, it, it's fucking Doom. It's 25 years old. It doesn't have any online features. Why is this here? <laughs> I don't know. Uh Apologies if you can hear um, aircraft in the background, by the way. It seems to be a fleet of helicopters flying over my location at the minute. So if you can hear that in the background, that's what's going on. It's not Bethesda coming to take me away. Oh my god, what I've, if it is? I've, I've angered Todd. What am I going <laughs> to do? <laughs> anyway, uh, continuing on. Uh, hardcore Mecha uh, multi-language on PlayAsia. Do you want to talk about this? I can never remember what Hardcore Mecha is every time you mention yeah, it. So. Yeah, so, so Hardcore Mecha, uh, full disclosure, I am a Kickstarter backer for Hardcore Mecha. Uh, uh-huh. Hardcore Mecha is a really beautiful 2D animated um, giant robot themed side scroller made to celebrate kind of the tradition of the Assault Suits Lanos series. Ah, uh, yes, I do uh, remember. It has just beautiful animation um, with like rotating multi sprites. Um, yeah. And it's been in development for a long time. It's won numerous awards at shows. Um, and, it's look- and it's looking like the physical release is going to be Asia exclusive. Um, mm-hmm. And as is, as is typical these days, there is a multi language version complete with English. What's really crazy about it is for some reason it's inexpensive. Uh, I, I was going to say, I was looking at this, it's £16.86 in uh, in uh, real money. Yeah, well, $19.99 US. <laughs> so, like, it was less than $30 for me to import the copy with with shipping, which is crazy. Mm. Um, so, everybody buy this game because it's gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that cheap. I might have to have to, have to bite on that at that point. Uh, Maybe I'll order it alongside Omega Labyrinth. <laughs> your, yeah, your cart just keeps building. <laughs> for, for, and then you get a big, beautiful Play Asia package in the mail. Ah, uh, that's true. That's always nice. That's always I'm excited. Nice. Yeah, I have Ninja Warriors, Ninja Saviors, or whatever they're calling it, and Caladrius Blaze on the way. Mm-hmm. And then, and then next month is uh, Onanaki, uh, yeah. like we just talked about, as well as the Joy Masher series uh, double pack yes. with Oni Oni Ken and Odalis for the Switch. Yes. 
yes. coming from there. Play Asia and Limited Run are both great for um, taking so long to ship stuff that you've forgotten you've ordered them by the time you get them. So by the time they arrive at your doorstep, you're like, oh yeah, I did order that. And then you've got these great new games that you've forgotten about to suddenly play. <laughs> yeah, I, liter- I literally have limited run piles like on my shelves of like stuff I just haven't even touched yet because like I just get a box and it's got like six games. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got a notification in my email today saying your package is on its way. And it's like, what what package? <laughs> but evidently yeah. it's, it's something I ordered at some point. I don't know what it is. I think it's from Limited Run because it's from the from the provider they normally use. I think it might be um, House in Fata Morgana and oh, yes. um, London Detective Mysteria because I think they said that shipped out a while back. So that'll be nice to have those finally. Mm-hmm. All right, and the last story we've got on our list for today is something about Hero Land. Um, yeah, do you want to yeah, so here, about this? Not not much. Just uh, Hero Land is a really cute um, RPG from Furio, which kind of they make curious games, and it's got a hmm. bit of a like a Paper Mario feel to it. Yes. Um, but I just thought the news was noteworthy for collectors of physical games like us because the special edition is going to be the only way to get a physical copy kind of like yeah. it was with lapis labyrinth mm-hmm. so so if you see the collector's edition and you're like i'll just wait for the game itself uh don't yeah. do that because it's not coming yeah. so the collector's edition is also only ten dollars more than the digital version so yes um, it's it's not going to break the bank and it looks like a nice edition as well so it's got uh it's got a drawstring pouch for some reason um despite being a ps4 game or is there a switch version of this as well uh i think oh, it's there is a put, switch version yes i think it's to put those little miniatures inside of it oh yeah that would make sense wouldn't it yeah okay so yeah so yeah it's got a drawstring bag uh it's got a soundtrack cd uh sumo wrestling papercraft project with the main characters whatever that means um and a 14 inch by 20 inch map of the park with important locations pointed out so yeah, looks looks pretty nice, and I mean, a, a soundtrack CD is is something that I always like in uh, an edition like this. So, yeah, and for ten dollars more than the digital download, you might as well really if you like collecting. So, yes. So this game looks super cute, and if you haven't watched footage of it, I highly recommend it. It's got a really neat aesthetic. Mm. All the little characters are like kind of exaggerated pixel art, and then yeah. they're like blown up as like little paper cutouts that like waggle back and forth like i said like paper mario but yeah, yeah. with also pixel art touch right, to cool. it and i i think furio makes really interesting games some people get down on them for making kind of cheap stuff but like yeah. uh, i think there's a lot of space in the work they do to to explore kind of new concepts and i've yeah. never really been i've never really regretted playing one of their games yeah Oh, this is the game that was previously known as uh, Work X Work, wasn't it? Yes, correct. Right, yeah, okay. That's why I didn't recognise the name of it, because I knew it by its old name. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yes, I do remember this. Um, yeah, it looks, looks cool. I'll have to um, to keep an eye out for this, because, yeah, that physical edition looks nice. Um, I don't know what's happening with that in Europe, then, if XCD is doing a physical version in uh, America. That often means that Marvelous will do one over here. Uh, okay. uh, but but not always. I, I haven't seen anything by Marvelous about it, but I, w- I will keep an eye out for that, certainly. Uh, if not, I- importing is pretty easy these days, so because uh, Amazon will ship most stuff uh, to the UK and Europe now as well. So Great. All right. uh, I two think more that's... things... Oh, you've got some more stuff, have you? I've got, I have two more little things that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, one is uh, Valkyrie Anatomia for the mobile phone. 
mm -hmm. uh, which is the latest Valkyrie profile game. Um, I don't care because it's on mobile, but it does mm -hmm. have a very good reputation. Um, the developer for Valkyrie Anatomia, Doki Doki Groove, is currently hiring for an Unreal Engine-based project on the PS4. Mm -hmm. So um, that's great news because, like I said, this game has a uh, Anatomia has a really stellar reputation. Um, I'm not saying this means a new Valkyrie profile, but what I am saying is uh, it's great when a developer who's made a good name for themselves on mobile makes the jump to console. Yeah. So yeah. just kind of keep an eye out on this and let's see what they make next and let's make sure to support it if it's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that. Uh, M2 is making a new Alesta game. Hmm. Um, Alesta is a very long storied, uh, horizontal, I'm sorry, vertical shoot 'em up series, uh, from Compile, um, which some people may recognize from the Genesis or Mega Drive version, uh, Robo Alesta, which is also known as Musha, yeah. which is one of, one of the most expensive and sought after games on the Mega Drive. Yes. Um, so it's just cool uh, that we're getting a new one of these. I love this series. I really love... Um, I'm sorry, Robo Alesta was the sequel to Musha. That's on the Sega CD, and that's the one I have, and that's the, how I got introduced to the series. The Japanese version of Musha is called Alesta Full Metal Fighter Eleanor, and Eleanor is back for, the, uh, for this new game. So... Mm -hmm. This, you know, just shmup fans, be aware that Alesta is making a return. <laughs> yes, and it's got character design by Eiji Komatsu, who works on Planetarian for Key and the anime Golden Time as well. So, yeah, some nice character designs in this as well. Yes. Cool. Right. Is that everything? Yes. All right, we didn't do too bad for a quiet week. Um, that's 45 yeah, minutes. I, I, of, uh, actually, what do you know? <laughs> ah, all right, let's take a short 20 break, minutes man. of it is bitching about Doom, though. Well, you know, needs to be said. <laughs> needs to be said. <laughs> right, let's take a short break, and we'll come back and we'll talk about what we've been playing recently. And we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our second segment, we'd like to talk about what we've been playing recently. So, uh, you want to go first, Chris? What have you been up to? Yes, I have been uh, giving a good old-fashioned exploration to Game Freak's Giga Wrecker. Oh, um, very nice. Which I haven't is... tried this yet, but I do have a limited run copy. Oh, good, so yeah. Tell me more. Yeah, so, so Giga Wrecker is a game from Game Freak, who... For the multitudes of people out there who forget that Nintendo doesn't actually make Pokemon, they just publish it. Uh, Game Freak is the people who are famous for making Pokemon. Uh, but mm -hmm. they do have a history of other interesting experimental titles, going all the way back to the Famicom. Um, Mendel Palace, one of my very favorite Famicom games, is actually a Game Freak game. Um, so Giga Wrecker is an open-platform exploratory side-scroller. 
whereas you well done. Well done. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> wherein you play as this girl in kind of this post-apocalyptic world that's overrun with these robots who's been injured and worked on and given cybernetic implants that allow her to manipulate the nano machines in the environment around her um so what they've done for this game which is really really cool is essentially kind of tried to apply a little bit of like what people love about kind of Minecraft and these games where you can like chip away at the environment and applied that to an action side scroller. So uh, what you do in Giga Wrecker essentially is you can break certain environmental materials just with your standard attack and they're kind of telegraphed very clearly, right? Like you'll, you'll know if it's the type of dirt or the type of metal you can break. Mm -hmm. Um, The pieces fall to the ground so the first component of that is, A, there's tremendous opportunity for physics puzzles because all of the materials that are breakable also respond with a semi-realistic gravity. So, right. so navigating the environment and solving environmental puzzles is kind of the biggest thrust of this game. So what they've actually done is this game does have combat, but it's not the focus of the game. Um essentially solving these environmental puzzles is so it almost feels like an attempt to kind of wed the puzzle focus of a game like zelda to uh one of these open platform side scrollers okay which is which is a very unique because these games are often almost exclusively combat focused yeah um the only other game i can think of that's done this in recent history which i know i've raved about in a previous episode is um konjak's iconoclasts Right. Also had a very similar focus on puzzle solving. Um, but this game is puzzle solving is very specifically related to the environment and breakable objects and how you can kind of manipulate things around you. So you might see a, like a long length of rock, like teetering from like a very small, uh, stalactite, right? If you break the stalactite, that long piece of rock might fall in such a way that one edge of it hits the platform you need to jump on and the other edge of it hits the floor and you've just created an incline that you can walk up. Whereas whereas yeah. you couldn't best that jump before. Mm. And it's that kind of thinking. Or uh, there might be a giant piece of rock suspended from a chain that's hanging over a chasm you can't cross. And like, what can you chip off of it to affect its gravity so that it swings just right for you to cross that chasm? St- stuff like that. Um... Now, added on to the ability to break those environmental hazards is that some of the pieces of debris have nano machines on them that you can see. It's like telegraphed very clearly as like a, like an orange glow. Right. Um, anything that has that orange glow, you can magnetize to yourself to build this giant wrecking ball of degree of debris you carry with you. Um, the more uh, nano bits you gather the bigger that wrecking ball the bigger that wreck the bigger that wrecking ball the more damage you can do the greater the range of your attacks etc etc um that wrecking ball breaks up the more you use it so you constantly have to be in this cycle of refreshing the size of that like keep looking out for more nano machines uh taking out enemies which yield yet nano machines always to try to keep that size of that wrecking ball topped off because there are certain puzzles that you need it for and as you yeah. prog- as you progress through the game you also gain the ability to manipulate the form of that debris you carry with you so um s- 
I'm not very far in the game, but so far I've unlocked the ability to turn it into a solid cube that I can use not just to as a stepping stone to jump over higher platforms, but also to use as a fulcrum for seesaw puzzles, or to use as a, a key for door locks, or to... Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also unlocked uh, the ability to turn that ball of debris into a sword that slices instead of breaks. Yeah. So, like, why is that important, you ask? Well, from a physics perspective, I can make a clean slice across a column of debris and then push it over neatly to fall where I need it to. Whereas if I'm breaking it just by swinging the wrecking ball, I'm not controlling where those pieces fall because of the gravity right. and the harshness of it. So the ability to yeah. slice cleanly totally affects my ability to navigate using the materials around me. So it's a really thoughtfully thoughtfully made game yeah that sounds really cool i'm looking forward to trying that now yeah yeah it's quite neat uh, and they, and then the enemies the combat itself is then tied to your ability to manage that the size of that ball right mm-hmm. so enemy yeah. enemies are clearly telegraphed with this aura of energy um basically they have enemies have shields on them and the size of that shield it corresponds to the size of your wrecking ball if your wrecking ball is not bigger than their shield you can't best them yeah. So you have to find out ways to keep the size of that ball big enough to tackle the enemies that are in the area around you. And uh, they'll glow blue if they're safe to fight. They'll glow red if you've got to do a little more scrounging to find more garbage. But uh, right. just just really, really cool. You, you And as the more you progress, you unlock more of these blueprints to do different things and manipulate the debris differently. Um. There's a little skill tree for powering your character up. Uh, it's just been a really pleasant time so far. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad that it turned out well. Yeah, so looking forward to giving that a go now. So I will uh, probably bust it out to record some footage for this when I come to edit. So I'll give it a shot then. Yeah. I, nice. I, I'm glad I gave it a try. Um, I was initially put off by its appearance. It kind of has that flash animation like kind of cheap rotational animation going on that i really dislike and i i I do dislike it like i find the game really not pleasing aesthetically but it's super worth playing because mechanically it's full of interesting ideas and and these puzzles the few i've encountered so far have been super clever good stuff all right that being all that's on your plate recently you've been playing other stuff as well just more bloodstain, and like I said, I don't okay. want to don't want to talk about bloodstain. We'll do yeah, yeah. we'll do an episode about bloodstain. All right, excellent stuff. Um, looking back at my past week, a, a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about is probably most relevant to our third segment. Um, so there are a couple of things I want to talk about though. Uh, one of which actually isn't something that I was playing, but an event I went to last weekend. So, oh yes. Um, yeah, I want to talk a bit about Digitizer Live. So, um, those who have been reading Mario Gamer for a while may recall back in I think it was about November of last year, uh, I wrote an article about um. Uh, digitizer which uh back in between i think it was 93 and 2003 was a daily games magazine on our teletext service on the televisions in this country so it was daily games news reviews that sort of thing um except very quickly um it became a lot more known for its kind of surreal humor uh rather than i mean it, it had gaming content there as well but for a lot of people, it was more fondly remembered for its humour and its characters and all its all its silliness as well. And 
Um, a while after sort of that all ceased to be a thing, um, the, the main guy behind it, Paul Rose, also known as Mr. Biffo, he, he uh, put together a site called Digitizer 2000 that was sort of him resurrecting the brand. He bu- he'd bought the trademark and everything for it, so it's it, it's his now. Um, at least partly because Teletext doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, the Digitizer brand is his now. And he's been gradually building up to um, doing more stuff. So he started with this website. Uh, he ran a Kickstarter to do a YouTube TV series um, of uh, sort of sort of long episodes that combined kind of chaotic comedy with some video game content. Since then, he's been doing some of these mini episodes where just him and someone talk about something, but they often descend into complete chaos as well. And one of the things he was very keen to do uh, was put on a live show uh, because there's there's a lot of people here in the UK who are still very invested in the whole digitizer thing. There's a lot of people who are interested in teletext preservation um and sort of retrieving old web pages old um teletext pages from vhs cassettes and that sort of thing um and so he 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 decided to put on this event uh on the in an art center on the outskirts of london and some other people um sort of collaborated with him to do uh, a fringe event before the the actual performance and so the day started with this event called chunky fringe which um had uh, it had a few sort of um, developers there who were showing off things that they new stuff that they had developed for old computers so there was someone who'd made an adventure game for the zx spectrum for example uh, there was someone who who built his own computer sort of using unconventional components and stuff when we're showing off the stuff that could run on that um, there were people who run current new teletext services that you can access today um and then as part of this there were a few panels as well so uh, there was a panel on the subject of teletext preservation so how how people um actually retrieve these old pages from old vhs cassettes the technology behind that and the techniques they need to use to do that um and also they had someone who used to work at teletext there as well on the engineering side of things so he he had some interesting insights to give on that Um, then there was a panel on one of Biffo's previous projects called Mr. Biffo's Found Footage, which was another YouTube series that was all very, very surreal humor in, and, and that sort of thing. Um, there were a lot of people involved with that, so there was uh, a talk on that. Um, and then finally, there was uh, a panel specifically about Digitizer itself as well, where people sort of talked about their fond memories of it, the, the, how they grew up with it, what their involvement with it was and that sort of thing. And then after all this was over, it was time for the live show in the evening. Uh, and the live show is basically a live take on what he did with his YouTube uh, TV series. So it was uh, sort of a, se- a series of segments that were loosely scripted, but most of the show was improvised or ad-libbed. So they sort of had a rough structure in mind, but then the exact content they kind of made up as they went along. And kind of digitizes defining thing since it's sort of come back and become a YouTube thing has been um sort of embracing chaos and failure so like a lot of the things they do a lot of the things they do go very wrong um but they they make it part of their performance and it's it, it, it is such a part of their identity now that the the tech guy at the theater he he fucked up the video intro for the show and had to rewind it and seek back through it and find the new bit but it, it just felt like it was a planned part of the show just because that sort of failure is uh, i mean before describes it as failure being baked into what he does so he, he he goes out and does something deliberately thinking that he's probably going to fuck something up along the way and just when it happens you just embrace it you just get on with it you have a good laugh about it you enjoy the reaction of the audience when that happens because it's often amusing and you don't get embarrassed about it and that's something that i've always found 
quite inspiring in a way really because he's he's done a lot of things that sort of haven't been received very well like he 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 may he wrote the script for a movie called pudsy the dog the movie which is absolutely terrible but he's he's always able to joke about that and uh, and that sort of thing and he's not embarrassed about it at all it's just something he did because his day job is as a screenwriter he writes children's television programs now um and yeah this this whole show was just it was just absolutely lovely it was it was a celebration of kind of a distinctly british aspect of um gaming enthusiasts of a certain age i'd say mm-hmm. so you kind of ha- <laughs> i don't know i I want to say you kind of had to be there for Teletext to get some of it. I mean, it wasn't a show about Teletext by any means, but you kind of had to be there for the original humour and stuff to understand what was so relevant and meaningful about this. But I've also heard reports from people who are a lot younger who didn't grow up with Teletext and digitising and that sort of thing, who've come to kind of the his channel and the community and stuff since then, and they all got a lot out of it as well. So it was just something for a lot of gaming enthusiasts to appreciate. And it wasn't a dry, boring show about gaming history and technology or anything like that. It was people having a good laugh with it. For example, the second half opened with a video um, that was sort of initially appeared to be sort of a very respectful, quite sort of um, um, almost sort of holy tribute to david braben creator of elite and the raspberry pi computer which then descended into um several of them dancing around the stage singing david braben did a poo to the tune of camp town races and the whole audience joined in you you haven't experienced anything quite like 400 people in a theater all singing david braben did a poo doodah doodah (laughs) (laughs) no i'd imagine i'd imagine that's a life-changing yeah moment (laughs) yeah it it was it it was honestly a really inspiring day and i've i've written about this on on my patreon blog and also on biffo's letters page this this week just gone by so do check out those posts if i had it but the the long story short is that the the whole day just created such a, a lovely positive atmosphere that as someone who kind of really struggles with a lot of social situations, I mean, obviously, stuff like this podcast aside, as someone who generally struggles with in-person interactions, particularly sort of unstructured ones when you're just thrown into a room with a bunch of strangers, sure. I, f- I found this environment to sort of be so welcoming and supporting that sort of I did things that I don't normally do at um, events like this. Like I, I went up to performers that I admire and I shook their hand and I thanked them for their time and that sort of thing. And I didn't make a twat of myself in the process. Mm. Um it's awesome which was a re- which was a really nice feeling it was just really really nice and satisfying to come away from that evening thinking yes i've not only had a good time i've i've sort of taken myself a bit out of my comfort zone i felt safe enough to do that and it was it was just a really positive experience so um yeah i i, I wanted to, to to throw some love towards that because it was it was a really nice way to spend last weekend i, I mm-hmm. mean I, I think my wife was pretty bewildered by the whole thing but uh she was kind enough to come along with me and sort of act as backup if i uh did get a bit uncomfortable or anything but like I say, the the atmosphere of the event was such that I I I just felt pretty good about what was going on and about myself in the process, which was a nice feeling. Yeah, yeah when you can find a convention that really works for you, there's really mm. there's really nothing like that feeling of community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and I mean that's sort of given me a bit more confidence now. So when future events come out like this. I, I won't feel quite so hesitant about going along to them. So yeah, it's really done me a lot of good as well. Great. So um, that's that. 
aside from stuff I've been writing about on Mario Gamer and stuff I want to bring up in the third segment, I know I've talked about it before, but I've been continuing to play Lapis Labyrinth. Um, So I thought I'd say a few more words about that because I think I'm closing in on the end of it now. Um, So I'm on the 10th dungeon now. Um, So uh, the structure of the game is that you go through these levels of dungeons and each dungeon then has, I think, uh, how many is it? It's about seven or eight different stages and uh, as you go through each dungeon there's uh, the stages gradually get longer and as you get into the later dungeons uh, they start incorporating the and mixing the environments together so you might get a later stage of a later dungeon incorporate some of the scenery from the earlier dungeons and mixes them around and that sort of thing so it keeps things um having plenty of variety and interesting it's it's not completely randomly generated or anything if you go into the same stage twice it will be the same arrangement of levels and the same level layouts and so on so you can learn the levels but there are a few randomized elements along the way like where you start in the level and where the things that you need to find in order to complete the level are and that sort of thing um but i think the thing that's been most enjoyable about this game is it's it's got that proper sort of nipponichi exploring progression mechanics thing about it and that, that might not appear immediately obvious when you start playing uh because when you start playing about the only way to power yourself up is to give yourself new gear but as you complete each new dungeon in the game you unlock a new feature and i'm continuing to unlock new stuff even up to this 10th dungeon now which is sort of like 80 90 percent through the game um and so by the end of that you have lots of different ways that you can customize your character so you can attach various enchantments to your weapons uh you can upgrade uh passive skills for your characters you can have different combinations of characters in that stack of characters you take with you you've got different equipment you've got um uh, items that give you permanent passive benefits and all sorts of things like that so and it's just one of those games that it's just really satisfying to sort of spend a bit of time between a run through the dungeon spending a bit of money in various ways and then seeing what effect that has on your gameplay after that because it, there's no way you can mess up in Lapis Labyrinth you can't you can't create a sense of broken progression because anything that is quote unquote permanent you can reset so like you can break down a weapon you can get the stuff back from it you can redo the enchantments on it even the passive skills on the characters you can redo it anytime if you want to as well i mean it cost you money to do so but there's no way you can you can sort of get yourself stuck in a corner in terms of progression so it really kind of allows you to celebrate and play with those progression mechanics and enjoy enjoy that wonderful feeling of more and more powerful monsters sort of falling beneath your assault and exploding into showers of gems and nice big numbers appearing on screen and that sort of thing <laughs> that's nip on yeah. at its best it's what they do definitely. it's what they do they're so good at it yeah yeah this is this is such a wonderful game and yeah i'm gonna make sure to to give it some love on Mario gamer when i've actually finished it so just just because i want to see if there's what, what all the mechanics are and yeah. by what i've seen what i've seen in the game so far it's continually adding new mechanics as you go through and getting more and more interesting as you, as you continue yeah it's amazing i mean i'm only on dungeon three and i'm already kind of like they now that they threw the blacksmith at me i'm like this is enough yeah. this is enough stuff <laughs> like i'm already overwhelmed by just the the possibilities for building a party yeah 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 so um really really enjoying that at the minute so like I say, I'm going to try and polish that off maybe this week or so, so I'll write something up about that at some point very soon. But uh, suffice to say for now, if you've if you've been vaguely interested in this game, then don't hesitate, grab a copy. It is, it is an excellent, excellent game, and it's one that, although it had an initially positive reaction, it's something that people have just stopped talking about. So I think 
what we said about the time it came out is probably going to come true. It's going to be one of those games that in 10, 20 years' time, people are going to go, did you ever play Lapis Labyrinth? And they're going to go, no. And then someone's going to go, oh, it's amazing. You should try it. And it will be like 400 quid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like we were just talking about with Hero Land, this is one of those games where if you didn't realize that the only way to get a physical copy is the, uh, is the limited edition. You've got to yes. get the version with the art book and the soundtrack in order to get a copy of the game. Yes, and again, that's an inexpensive limited edition. Yeah, it's, it's not, not expensive. Not, it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's, I don't think it's actually any more expensive in this country than the downloadable version. And yeah, you get a soundtrack CD and an art book with it. So, um, but yeah, definitely well worth your time. Being enjoying that. Like I say, we have talked about it before, but I did want to throw some more love its way because uh, it's good and it's been lasting me quite a while. So, good for that. All right, um, that's probably about it for in terms of stuff that I don't want to mention in the third segment. So, have you got anything else? No, not really. I haven't had much time to play. I've got my convention coming up next weekend, so I've been diving into art full full bore. Good stuff. All right, well, let's take a short break then, and then we'll get into our main discussion. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our third segment, we're going to have a chat about arcade racers. Um, now, this is a uh, topic that I've always had a lot of time for. I've always been a big fan of arcade racers. Um, Chris, I know you say you don't have a ton of experience with these, um, but that you have played a bunch over the years. So, yeah, um, this is going to be a sort of interesting exchange of knowledge. I think I'm. I'm, I'm not going to sort of pretend that this is going to be a completely comprehensive rundown or anything like that. And depending on how long we go on for uh because you know what we're like uh we, we we may have to sort of we may have to sort of draw a line at some point and come back to this but i i've certainly got a list of things that i want to talk about today and i'm sure you've got some things you want to mention as well so yeah um i'm gonna go sort of roughly chronologically um in terms of original release date i didn't necessarily play all of these when they were originally current although i did in a lot of cases um but I, i'm going to sort of go roughly chronologically so there's going to be um, a, a vaguely historical aspect, but like I say, I'm not going to pretend that this is completely comprehensive or anything like that. All right, disclaimer over. Um, the first thing I want to talk about then is uh, the earliest one on this list is a Sega game called Monaco GP, uh, which originally came out in 1979. Um, now, my, my actual only experience of this game is the Sega Ages version that was released for PlayStation 2, which actually came out in 2003. Mm. Um, but that version contains uh, a pretty authentic uh, kind of reimagining of the original Monaco. Um, and this was a very early take on the arcade racer. Very simple. Um, mostly about sort of proceeding down a straight road that occasionally sort of uh, widens and narrows and avoiding cars um kind of the interesting thing about monaco from a modern perspective and a, a kind of historical and technological perspective is that this was the the last game that sega made that didn't use uh, a cpu so like most most computers and consoles and stuff use a central processing unit these days monaco did not monaco was built entirely using logic circuits um, the downside of this is that it makes it very difficult to emulate the game today, which is why we have we it, it doesn't get talked about a ton today, is because these these sort of physical electronic logic circuits make it quite difficult to emulate using software. 
Um, but it's it's a noteworthy game because it was a very early example of an arcade racer. It established a lot of the conventions, like sort of racing against the clock and having uh, sort of upright and sit down versions with steering wheels and pedals and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know how easy it is to find a machine of this in the wild, but uh, certainly the the Sega Ages version for PS2 is uh, is a game that's that's worth playing. Um, you have any familiarity with this at all? No, none whatsoever. No. So like, yeah. that's going to be a running theme. One of the reasons I hesitantly agreed to do this topic was because every now and then I like when we do a topic where I get to learn more from you and mm. and, and vice versa. So like, I don't have much input on any of this stuff because honestly, I don't really <laughs> li- I don't really like racing games that much, and mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how to drive sticks, so I don't know how to play half of them. Uh, yeah. it does, that doesn't make sense to me. So, like the game, like the games, I'll be able to talk about enthusiastically is just like the simplest of the simple stuff, like Outrun and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, Monaco GP is pretty simple. Uh, I forget whether or not it has gear shifting in it, but uh, if it did, it's it's pretty simple stuff. But uh, yeah, so it's um, like I say, the, the 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 most readily accessible way of playing it these days is the old PS2 Sega Ages collection and that version has both an original um a a sort of remake of the original using polygonal graphics rather than sprite based graphics and also a kind of um a kind of a range mode uh which has a very interesting kind of cornering system so in that version you um instead of going down a straight road you come across 45 degree or 90 degree corners every so often and what you do is you use the shoulder buttons on the controller to actually turn by 45 degrees or 90 degrees at a time. So rather than turning around corners smoothly, you're sort of snapping around corners almost like you're doing a dungeon crawler, but you're racing. It's very strange, but it's it's quite satisfying once you get a feel for it. Um, the other interesting thing about that port is it was made by Tamsoft. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So... Um, that era of gaming um tamsoft were doing a lot of these sort of budget price games so they did a lot of stuff in the simple oh. series they did a lot of stuff in the sega ages collection so yeah if you're interested in sort of early tamsoft stuff then uh, yeah there's 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 a lot in the ps2 era that's definitely worth checking out all right um so monaco i don't know a ton about because uh, like i say i came to it for the first time recently the first game on my list that i do know a bit more about is pole position which was from 1982 um now, Pole Position is a super important game in terms of uh, the entire arcade racing genre. It was it was sort of kind of the defining game. Um, so, this was a Namco game. It was designed by Toru Iwatani, who was the same guy who made Pac-Man. Um, and when this first came out in 1982, it was the highest grossing arcade game in North America. For a whole year. Um, and to, to put that in context, the, the figures I got from Wikipedia about this are... Uh, supposedly throughout the year it was earning $450 per week per machine Wow! Um, with over 21,000 machines sold uh, and that that is $450 per week per machine in 1982 so that equates to sort of nearly $1,200 a week per machine in today's money so that's a hell of a lot of money this game was making it's a hell of a lot um, of quarters quarters <laughs> <laughs> yes Yes, yes, definitely. So just multiply that by four, yeah, and that's how many people were playing that game. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. So, so this this was a huge deal, particularly in North America, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It was one of the first games to make use of 16-bit hardware. It was one of the first games to use sprite scaling. Um, 
earlier games had used sort of steering wheel controls and pedals but because pole position was an early example of a game that created a fairly convincing 3d effect this was sort of one of the earliest arcade games that almost felt like a ride because it was sort of presenting you with a, a, a if, what was at the time fairly realistic graphics and so this sort of really defined um what we now know is either sort of vanishing point races or horizon chasing races um by today's standards it's it's fairly simple and straightforward but it's still got some interesting mechanics in there that sometimes we don't see in in more recent examples of this kind of game so uh, you had a gear shift but it was only, it was quite a common sight in um racing games of this era is that you just had to shift between low and high gear so um outrun is another good example of if you having to do that so you use your low gear to kind of get up to speed and then use your high gear to reach your maximum top speed um so there's not a lot of gear shifting you have to worry about but you do still have to remember to do it otherwise you'll either limit your top speed or you'll have very slow acceleration um so pole position um it also incorporated things like doing a qualifying lap so you sort of did an initial time trial to establish where you were going to be in the race and then assuming you got a good enough time to qualify for the race you then had other people to race against um it, it was to be said that i've never raced against other people in <laughs> yeah no I, I i i can qualify fairly convincingly most times i play these days back when i was playing this as a kid uh on the atari 8-bit because that's the version we had that was my first contact with this game with the atari 8-bit port which is very good by the way um yeah i i wasn't very good at this um but i still enjoyed it i still enjoyed it and i i, I think um now might be a good time to sort of raise why i think these games have kind of enduring appeal and nostalgia and that sort of thing so certainly for me back in these early days when i was playing racing games i i was sort of a young kid in most cases so sort of well 1982 i wouldn't have been old enough to play pole position but by sort of maybe 85 86 or so i would have been playing video games by that point now i would have played the atari 8-bit version that we had um and at that age, I was sort of fascinated with the idea of driving, of having cars and that sort of thing. It was something that I wasn't able to do as a kid. And you know how far off adulthood seems when you're a kid. Um, you sort of think that it's something you're never going to get to do. It seems so far away. And so having... I feel that way right now at 34. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel you. Um <laughs> But yeah, so it's stuff like driving sort of seems like almost an impossible dream at some point. You see your parents doing it, and you, can, you kind of fantasize about doing it. So, so video games allowed me the opportunity to sort of, although I knew that these weren't realistic experiences due to the limitations of the time, they were sort of the closest I could get to experiencing this fantasy of driving for myself. I mean, obviously, once you get to become an adult, you just discover that driving is quite boring because normally you're commuting to work and that is a hellish experience that everyone has to go through at some point. But yeah, when you're a five-year-old, um, driving is this sort of exotic fantasy and, and, and pole position kind of um, um, sort of really, really fueled that fantasy for me. It was sort of a, an early way of getting me fascinated in that sort of thing. So, um, there was also a cartoon show of Pole Position. Yeah, there sure I, was. Which I, I, I must confess, I, I've never seen, but I think you were checking it out the other day. Did you, did you actually watch any of it at all? I remember watching it as a kid, but it's just, ah. it's, it's just like for me, it's just I'm, I'm a connoisseur of '80s cartoon opening song theme songs. Mm-hmm. And the pole position one is just... 
I can't I can't play pole position without the voices in my head just going pole position. <laughs> it's like, and, a, and, a, and a weird creepy voice going only their uncle knows. Which which let me let me state this, children. If there's anything in your life that about you that only your uncle knows, you need to <laughs> see you need to seek the help of a professional therapist and or <laughs> child protective services. Hmm. Um. Yeah, it, but what's, what's amazing about the pole position cartoon is it has goddamn nothing to do with pole position. Oh no, absolutely for, fuck all. Absolutely so, fuck so all. Because like, pole, pole position is a very serious attempt at emulating the rigors of F1 racing. Yeah. Granted, granted with limited capacity. The pole position cartoon is about like two scrappy teens who have like Knight Rider cars that have AI, <laughs> AI in them. And then the cars can, like, transform into, like, hydrofoil or, like, a plane when they, like, launch off ramps. <laughs> so, it's literally just, like, Namco was like, shit, people love pole position. What can we do? <laughs> what can we do about this? It, it, it's so nothing to do with pole position that I was convinced it was just a, um... Like, <laughs> I was convinced that it was just pole position is a, a thing in racing, yeah, and th yeah. this is a cartoon that is also called Pole Position. It just happened to be called Pole Position, yeah. But yeah. then when you watch the intro, it says, like, from Namco. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, like, I was like, oh, oh my. So there really is a connection here. Because, like, I was convinced for years, I was convinced that it had nothing to do with it. But then when I just watched the video mm -hmm. yesterday to send it to you again, yeah. I saw the, like, by Namco or whatever. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah yeah so so that was the thing that was kind of an interestingly fairly widespread thing at the time because um i think when you shared that video as well i also shared with you the missile command lp yes um which was a i mean it's hard to hard to describe that really um i guess <laughs> i guess it was kind of an attempt to do the sort of war of the worlds thing themed after missile command but it's just so terrible it's brilliant <laughs> yeah i was very confused by it but oh, that's it's... like you that's how you know you've made it ba back in yeah. those days that's how you knew you made it right if yeah. you had a multimedia property uh, an album uh an animated series that that was it yeah right yeah, that... yeah. and that's yeah, it's it's interesting that that kind of still happens today, but it mostly happens in Japan now rather than America. So yeah. like, sort of see, seeing something have transmedia success in in Japan is pretty common. So you'll have something that was a visual novel, then becomes an anime, maybe then becomes a different kind of video game, has a line of figures, all sorts of things like that. So, but that that doesn't seem to happen quite as much with American stuff these days or or European yeah. stuff. I mean, there are exceptions, of course. There's stuff like The Witches getting its upcoming TV series and so on, but it's not well, quite the same thing as as what we had back in the '80s, certainly. Japan has a very unique development process for stuff like that. I mean, we're kind of diverging quite a bit, but like, like level fine. level five uh, as a company, really, it, their entire ethos is never to simply develop. They are a video game developer, but they develop properties. Mm -hmm. So, like, Yokai Watch was never considered as just a game right off yeah. the bat. It was considered as a game, anime, and toy line multimedia franchise. Uh, that that that's just part and parcel of how a lot of these companies operate yeah. over there and it's not quite the same here like here game developers are like we're game developers and if like something gets 
wrapped up into that than it happens to. But there are companies in Japan who are legitimately exploring this multimedia franchising possibility as part of the inception of the of the the intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Okay. Uh, moving on from pole position, now I think probably the most obscure game on this list is um, a game by Activision from 1985 called The Great American Cross Country Road Race, mm. um, which was always fun to try and fit on disc menus on the Atari 8-bit uh, <laughs> because the t- because the title was too long to fit in 40, 40 columns of uh, letters. Um, GACCRR. So yeah. 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 Gacker. Um, basically, what this was, um, there was an earlier game on the Atari 2600 called Enduro, which is much more well-known than this, and this was basically a sequel to Enduro. And uh, the concept was the same. So in both Enduro and the Great American Cross Country Road Race, it is a game where you are driving a car across America. Um, and sort of the twist on the usual racing game formula of the time is that... Um, you're going through different conditions along the way. So in the original Enduro, you went through uh, a day-night cycle. So um, you started in the daytime, then it became, I think it became nighttime, and then it became foggy in the early morning, and then you were back to morning again. Um, and so that that sort of gave you different, different ways of having to deal with things. So obviously when it was dark or when it was foggy, you had much lower visibility and stuff. So that was actually quite advanced stuff for the 2600 to be doing. What the Great American Cross Country Road Race did is it took those elements of Enduro and it kind of made a bit of a more substantial game out of it. Um, so it was it was inspired by the movie The Gumball Rally um, and the, the theme behind it was you, you pick two cities on the map of the US and then you have to race between them using several different stages. And there were different routes you could take. Um, so each time you reached a major city on the route, you could choose which direction you were going to go next. Um, there were leaderboards that you could save to cassette or disc uh, to sort of track your best times against both a computer-controlled field and against other players. Um, and it had different scenery for different areas. So sort of when you go into sort of the, the northern areas, it would be more snowy. There'd be weather conditions such as fog. There'd be time of day. Um, you had limited fuel, so you had to stop for gas every so often. And if you ran out of gas, you had to push your car to the next petrol station. Um, there were police chases. And um, the thing you would hate is that there is mandatory manual gear shifting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if hate's the right word. Literally don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just it, don't understand gear shifting. Yeah, I, I bring this up because... I was obviously playing this around the same time as I was playing stuff like Pole Position. Uh, Pole Position, as a five-year-old, I could kind of get the idea of low and high gear. That was easy to understand. In this, you have five gears. Um, I did not understand this when I played it. I did not understand why there were different gears. And so, because I didn't really understand the controls or what gears were for or anything like this, I would always, every time when I played this as a kid, I would shift immediately up into fifth gear and then just sort of accelerates very slowly up until my top speed whereas what you're supposed to do in this is, is this this is the first game i saw we had a realistic instrument panel with like a rev counter and stuff as well so what you were supposed to do was sort of drive um get up sort of towards the red line shift up and so on so you had a, g- a good pace of acceleration and if you do that you can easily complete each route as a kid because i didn't know this was what you were supposed to do with gears i i would barely be able to complete the first stage and i remember getting very very angry and upset at how i quote my five-year-old self the timer cheats 
in this game because oh. <laughs> because I just I just could not get to the next stage just because I didn't understand how these gear shifts work. Now returning to it today, obviously I know how to drive a stick shift car because that's pretty much all we use here in the UK, and so I can have a lot more fun with this game. But yeah, this this game was memorable for me because I wanted to like it, but because I didn't quite understand it, I I had a tough time liking it as a kid. Um, but it's 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 worth having a look at today. It's it's got. Um, frustrating aspects um stopping at the petrol pumps is quite difficult to do and if you overshoot one and run out of fuel you then have to push your car to the next one which can take quite a long time of just hammering the joystick button but um yeah aside from that it does some really interesting things um and in some ways um it, it predates outrun but it does some similar things to what outrun does with the with the multiple routes and that kind of thing so it's an interesting game from that perspective all right, uh, moving on. One that I know you have been giving a go recently is Buggy Boy, uh, yes. which was also a 1985 game. So this was uh, re- uh, developed by Tatsumi and in various locations around the globe. It was released by Data East or Taito as well. So this was a, um, a slower-paced racing game, so rather than focusing on sort of high-speed F1 racing or sports cars or anything like that, in this one you were driving an off-road buggy, so it kept the speed down a bit and placed the focus on technical challenges. So in Buggy Boy, there's several different things you can do as you're playing through to earn more points and time and stuff so one is collecting colored flags in a specific order Uh, you can pass through gates to get points uh, or extra time and there's also stunts you can do so like you can drive over logs to leap into the air you can drive over a stone to flip your buggy up onto two wheels and be able to take tighter corners there's banked corners um, all sorts of things like that so this was a really interesting game at the time because i think this was sort of um the first racing game that i played that did something a bit more than pole position yeah um, yeah that's that's why this appealed to me mm. um because it, it it felt more gamey than semi yeah 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 so so i mean although you are still racing against the clock in this there is a much stronger focus on earning points along the way and actually getting a high score rather than the best time um so yeah i really like this my first contact with this was the atari st version is i think that was probably one of the first atari st versions i played the st port is very good it's not arcade perfect by any means it's missing stuff like um the other buggies driving around the track so you're just driving by yourself and avoiding the hazards but but it is a very good port um the arcade version had a three screen panoramic setup which is beautiful to behold Mm -hmm. um and it had multiple tracks to choose from. So there's one closed circuit and one multi-leg point, uh, four multi-leg point-to-point races along the way as well. So a lot of variety in there as well. So um, you say you played this for the first time recently. So so wh- what what did you reckon? Well, I just, uh, like I mentioned, it, to me, I enjoyed this a lot more than a lot of the other racing games I played because I'm not really interested in racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I've never been one for like time trial in games like I, yeah. I'm not I'm not one who enjoys like racing for best time or, or competing for best time so Buggy Boy appealed to me pretty much immediately because it felt more gamey like and by that I mean that the presence of the slaloms and the flags to pick up like yeah. it gave me something else to do besides try to get a perfect race line which is something I've never really understood anyway yeah but, um so it just I was instantly more engaged by it, the hazards to avoid, things to pick up and collect and do. Mm-hmm. Um, aesthetically, it's got a bit more of a cartoony presentation, which obviously yes. appeals yeah. to me. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's just a really charming, friendly game, and I didn't... I find racing games very intimidating because of how little I understand about the sport. But yeah. when I fired Buggy Boy up, I immediately didn't feel intimidated by it. I was just like, this is a good time. Yes. So. Yes. I think, um, sort of thinking about it, this has only just occurred to me, but thinking about it, Buggy Boy is kind of um, an early example of what I would regard as a kind of racing subgenre that developed later that I would call adventure racing. Yes, and this is the stuff I like. Yeah. So if you think of things like um, things like the Cora Q series, the Penny Racer series, yeah, and kart racers as well would fall into this category as well. So stuff where you're doing more than just driving around around in the circuit. So stuff where you may be collecting items, or there's ways to score points, or you're doing stunts or that sort of thing. So yeah, thinking about it, Buggy Boy is probably one of the first examples of a racing game doing this sort of thing. So. Yeah, I, I can understand why that would appeal to you, particularly if you enjoy those later games as well. So Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of the games I have listed here are that stuff. Yes. So, like, like, I played a lot of the games you told me to play for, like, 30 seconds each, and I was like, okay, this is all the same. <laughs> this is all the same to me. But then I'm like, yeah, when can I play Road Blasters? <laughs> like, like this, is, this is the kind of stuff I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Road Blasters is a good one, actually. I'm just... Um... I didn't play it a lot back in back in the day, but again, this is another one that I've sort of uh, become a little bit more familiar with more recently. I'm just looking at when that was. So, Road Blasters was in 1987. So this that was after Buggy Boy, um, much later than Pole Position and so on. So that was kind of a, a later evolution when people were kind of trying to do something a bit more. And actually, Atari games of the period were quite good for this. So, Road <laughs> Blasters was them. They also did Stun Runner as well, which I think was one of the first uh, futuristic races I played. Oh, um, cool. Stun Runner is really cool, actually, because it was it was an early polygonal game, so it's got a lovely low-poly look about it as well. It had a terrible Atari ST port that I still played a lot regardless because it was quite entertaining. Um, but the, the arcade version of Stun Runner is really cool. Um, so it's it, it kind of... Um, it kind of has sections that that are a bit like roller coaster tracks, where you're outside and you're sort of on an elevated track, and then it goes into these tunnels. So it was kind of a, an early example of a game where you can sort of go all the way around a circular tunnel and that kind of thing, and you have to be on the outside of the corners and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's that's one well worth looking at. That actually wasn't on my list, uh, but uh, yeah, definitely definitely worth worth a look, especially if you like kind of futuristic races. Um, my next one that I've got on the list then. So Buggy Boy was 1985. The following year we had Outrun. Mm. Now, um, yeah. So, Outrun. Um, do you like Outrun? You, you've said that you don't like other races, but do you like Outrun? Uh, I like Outrun's legacy, right? Uh, I, but I just I can't get far in it, so I don't love it. Right? You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I am more I am more prone to play Outrun than probably any other game on the lists we'll discuss today. Okay. But but at the same time, I still like when I say I play Outrun. It's like I play Outrun for like five ten minutes before I die. I, before I failed three <laughs> times, and I go, "Oh, that's right. I don't understand racing games." <laughs> so so, what is it about Outrun that attracts you a bit more than some of these other games? Then I think for me, and this is something that'll co- continuously come up too, is just like I don't care about sport. Right. Yes. Like like as like conceptually, I don't care about sport. Mm-hmm. So, like, when a game is a sport racing game, an F1 game, a stock car game, I'm very unlikely to care about it because there's yeah. no narrative there. There's not really much. 
Uh, although the games can be technically accomplished and graphically well executed, to me there's not a lot of like interesting artistic exploration going on. Outrun has a very specific theme and identity. So like even though it might not technically play that differently than any other of the sport themed racing games, Outrun ties me in with its cool narrative. Yes. And there is no narrative, but at the same time, it's like, you're a cool guy in a hot rod with a good-looking girl. Like, let's see how fast we can drive in the, this 90s beach culture. Like, yeah. it's... Everything about OutRun is, like, charming and cool and wants you to enjoy it. It yeah. doesn't, doesn't feel competitive. It feels exploratory. And it's just like, how much of these new environments can I see? Yes. How much of this chill music can I enjoy? Like... So it's just classic Sega doing what Sega does best, right? Taking something and just making it so cool. Yes. Like cool conceptually, yes. not cool descriptively, but like the concept of cool is like yes. something Sega was always very good at. Yeah. So it's sort of it, this was designed by Yu Suzuki, who was sort of um, no shit, very, yeah, <laughs> very, very big in in um, Sega's arcades of the time. So this this was sort of one of his big early games. So the previous year to Outrun, he'd done uh, Hang On, which was a motorcycle racing game, yeah. And with as part of that, he developed this um, this superscalar technology for Sega, which was basically uh, some tech that allowed objects and things to smoothly increase in size on the screen but more than that um he was um he was thinking of games much more in 3d than had happened in previous things so he despite the games making use of 2d sprites he was actually sort of doing th doing clever things like calculating the position of things relevant in 3d space um and so we can see things like that in outrun like you can see when you pass different cars on the screen you can sort of see the sides of them and that's 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 like a little touch that you might not notice without someone pointing it out to you but it's a really cool touch if you do notice it so it sort of gives the whole thing a much more convincing immersive feel than a lot of previous games and i think that's what that's why a lot of people like outrun and as you say it's also there's the the fantasy aspect as well it, it's it's not a game where you are trying to uh sort of be the best at a sport it's a game where you're just out for a drive um admittedly a drive in a very fast car against the time limit but still you're just out for a drive and apparently yeah, you're just um trying to impress your girl <laughs> yeah and so from from sort of um various interviews and stuff i've read with suzuki on the subject he specifically disliked uh, a particular element of of pole position specifically uh, which is where if you crashed you exploded and wasted a lot of time and his sort of core design philosophy behind outrun and i think this is this is where a lot of the reason it appeals to you a lot more comes from is the fact that he wanted to create a racing game where the player felt powerful and superior to everyone else so mm. you are there you are in a car that is significantly nicer than anything else on the road um you've got this beautiful girl next to you you are driving at high speeds um yeah so the whole point of outrun is for you to feel cool um that that is its core design philosophy so it's not it's not about racing and so that sort of thing it is it is a game about being cool and so yeah evidently he was pretty successful in that which is cool um i do yeah i do like outrun a lot uh it has had a lot of ports over the years i i, I think i saw a video from someone recently that went through all of them and i think there are 17 ports of outrun 
wow. uh, over the years. Uh, with the most recent one being the Nintendo Switch version, which is very good, and which also might actually address some of the things that you bounce off a bit, um, because it's got uh, it's got some settings in it. So it's got a difficulty setting where you can uh, increase or decrease the amount of traffic on the road to make it a bit easier or more difficult for you. Uh, you can also increase the time limit uh, to such a point where it's almost impossible to run out of time, so you you can get to the end of it. And then if you reach any of the five different goals in OutRun, because OutRun was a game where you could pick your route to the end as well, which is a, a noteworthy thing about it, uh, getting to four out of the five goals will unlock some parts for your car that make various aspects of driving easier. So, for example, oh, you, unlock, uh, you unlock tires and that makes you going around corners a bit easier because you don't skid out as much. Uh, you can unlock an engine to accelerate faster. You can unlock... Um, something to increase your top speed and something that yeah and even something that means you don't lose as much speed when you crash into something as well so um i think the, the 3ds version had those as well um so yeah the 3ds version and the switch version are probably the most accessible versions of outrun uh if you find the original one a little, little bit too difficult so um if you if you like the idea of it but have sort of bounced off it or never been able to finish it then check those versions out and you might find you're able to get a bit further because the, the five different end sequences are worth seeing because they're all quite amusing. <laughs> all right, uh, next one I got on my list is um, back to sort of sport racing, but it's uh, it's an interesting one. It's uh, Continental Cir- Circus by Taito. Uh, this was 1987, so this was the year after Outrun. Um, Continental Circus, one of the things it's, it's mainly remembered for today is its name. Uh, because back at the time, people assumed that the name continental circus was a misspelling as part of the localization or just all oh, those crazy japanese saying things wrong um but no the, oh, the like language it should be circuit is yes that, is that what the assumption yes. was yes that, that was the assumption but no the the name was actually intentional because circus is a word that's used in both japanese and french uh to mean racetrack and it's got its mm. roots in latin um so so in latin the word circus was used as for sort of chariot racing and so on and that's through some convoluted means found its way into both french and japanese mm. um there was also a movie at the time this came out um called continental circus as well it was like a documentary film as well unrelated to this game um so you so say not not even sort of sponsored by taito or anything it just happened to come out around the same time although rather cheekily taito did use a voice sample from it in the game <laughs> so there's like there's like a general one start your engines thing in in the continental circus game that is just it's just lifted from the movie mm. we talked we talked a bit back back on our snk episode where people just sort of didn't really uh, yeah. either know or care about copyright rules at the time so yeah they just they just use this <laughs> so there's a few interesting things about this game um one is that the original arcade version um it came with 3d shutter glasses so it was one of the first sort of true 3d games you could play in its sit down incarnation there were sort of shutter glasses hanging from the ceiling that you put on to play um and so things would pop out of the screen at you and the second thing is that um more than any other game we'd had previously there was a lot more sort of simulation elements in this one so 
um there were things like it would start raining uh and you'd have to pull into the pits and change your tires uh you could take damage um uh, there was a huge field of opponents as well so continental circus game structure was that you didn't have to win the race but each stage you had to pass a particular point in this pack of 100 opponents and so like in the first stage you had to pass say 20 people and get up to 80th place and then the next one you have to get up to like 60th place and so on so that provided quite an interestingly different structure to previous racing games at the time um it was it was a speedy game it had sort of lots of uh, sort of undulations in the track as well which was kind of a a new thing that had pretty much been introduced with outrun i'm not sure if outrun was the first one to actually have hills and undulations in a racing game but it was certainly a very early one and continental circus did very good um 3d effects um so that's a noteworthy one i i imagine that's one that you would probably bounce off quite hard because it's a it's a very difficult one um yeah i did i did play standards. it and um i didn't understand it but uh-huh. one thing i one thing i will say about it is holy shit the backgrounds oh yeah it's beautiful, beautiful the game. really impressive backgrounds in this game yeah like like you know i had been playing these games that, that you had recommended in chronological order and then when i hit this one it just felt like the first really significant leap and like detailed beautiful background art yeah yeah definitely yeah it is it is a lovely looking game and it's um uh, it's got an early example of some Zuntata music in it as well. So there's, oh. no mu- there's no music during the game, but between races, there's like some little jingles and stuff, and those are all Zuntata compositions. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic Taito, that one. Uh, it's on one of the Taito Legends compilations. I think it's the second one. I think this mm. one is on, so you can play that one. Uh, again, my first contact with this was actually the Atari ST version, which was a really solid port, actually. It obviously lacked the... Um, the 3D aspect of the original game, but aside from that, it had pretty much everything the arcade version did, so that was a good port. Um, next one uh, is from the year after. It's another Taito game. Uh, this is one I didn't play back in the day, but have had uh, a bit of a go with recently. This is Chase HQ. Um, now, again, this this is a racing game that attempted to add something a bit different to the formula. So, again, rather than sports, in this one, you are playing um, policemen and you are chasing down criminals and so this adds a combat element to the mix um and it was really widely praised at the time for adding this new element to it because it was it was something very different to what we had um from other racing games at the time and retrospectively it's kind of regarded as the inspiration for um uh, games like driver and burnout that have uh, sort of a strong um emphasis on wrecking other vehicles or uh, pursuit force too well. right yeah 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 absolutely so uh yeah chase hq is a really cool one uh did you play this one at all this is 88 right chase yes HQ. that's right yeah 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 far, far and away chase hq is the game i had the most fun with out of all yes. the games you told yeah. me to check out like i loved this yeah and and i got it like there was just <laughs> something very specific about the physics of it the turning like it it, it clicked with me and i was actually able to get somewhere in it like yeah. it, it was great it's just fantastic um the digitized speech is incredible <laughs> get a move on buddy <laughs> just, yeah oh yeah this was just just a fantastic game and like you said that the roots of kind of this chase genre starting to emerge it was just such a pleasure to play yeah and as i mentioned with buggy boy by giving me a goal to achieve besides a time, yeah, it inst- it instantly engaged me more. Yeah, 
by giving me an opponent to best, a goal to attain, mm-hmm. uh, I, I immediately felt more motivated to play it. So yeah. I, I spent pr- the, probably the most time with this one out of everything you recommended I check mm-hmm. out. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. This this is this is a cool game, and I'm kind of sorry I didn't play this back in the day because it's one that I was always aware of. So like the the computer magazines at the time were always praising it because like the the Atari ST and Amiga versions of this were very good, I think. Uh, but I never actually played it until quite recently, which is which I regret now because I know I would have had a lot of fun with it. But um, it's also kind of unfortunate that this one hasn't had very many ports. Like this one doesn't appear on the Taito Legends compilations, for example. Oh, really? That's um, a bummer. Yeah, which is a real shame because it's it, it's it's one that uh, I think a, a lot of people would would still enjoy today, particularly given the popularity of stuff like Burnout and and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a, a very cool one and definitely worth checking out. But I think I think emulation is probably your only option uh, at this point for that one. It does emulate perfectly in Mame. Like I had zero <laughs> issues with it. That's good. Um, it also came out on a bunch of other platforms as well. I think there were Mega Drive versions, and there was a SNES version as well. Um, the SNES version actually was a slightly different game. It, it unfolded from a first-person perspective instead of behind the car, which is quite interesting. That's um, actually my preferred perspective for racing. I was unable to really get into racing games until first-person perspective became more commonplace. Yes. There's just some. There's just something about a third person behind the car view that I just can't understand. Turning. Yeah, it's. I don't know. I I, I kind of feel that way with true 3D racing games. So like, I can't play most modern polygonal races from a third person perspective because I always end up oversteering. Uh, but uh, when I'm playing like one of these games that we're talking about here, these Horizon Chasers, um, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it for some reason. I think some of that is to do with the fact that these early games that they they don't play in true 3d so when when you turn in a game like this you're not actually turning you're moving sideways yeah. um so, so what you're doing is you're moving side from side to side across the road and when you go around a corner what the corner does is it's just pushing you towards the outside of the road so you have to steer around the corner to counterbalance that and that's something i kind of got my head around very quickly and could understand that from a third-person perspective. But as soon as, like, Ridge Racer, I think, was the first proper polygonal racer that I played where third-person perspective really didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, yeah, for, from then on, sort of anything after Ridge Racer, I have to play from a first-person perspective, otherwise I, I just can't do it. Yeah. But, yeah, these, these early ones I don't have a problem with, but I completely understand why you would, particularly if you have less familiarity with them. So, yeah, I get it. Right, so... Um, that was Chase HQ. Uh, continuing on from there, uh, I actually had a game from '88 that I'd like to suggest we discuss. Oh, please do, if, please if do. You've, if you've never played Sega's Power Drift, ah, yes. Um, so Power Drift is a really cool example of a very early kind of prototype of kind of what we now know as the kart racer. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a Yu Suzuki title. Big surprise. Um, yep. But what's really distinct about Power Drift is obviously it's not sport. It has a very like cartoony presentation where uh, all the drivers are kind of caricatures, um, these goofy characters. But it is one of the most impressive pseudo 3D sprite scaling games I think I've ever seen. Oh, it's gobsmacking. It, Absolutely yeah, gobsmacking. In terms of the sheer quantity of layers at play, it, it's unreal. Yeah. And Oh, go ahead. Well, the the interesting thing about Power Drift is it constructs the entire track from sprites, 
which is not something that the previous games did. The previous games sort of simulated this 3D with these converging lines on the screen, which is why they, they get referred to as vanishing point races. But Power Drift was actually using sprites to construct the track as well, which gave it a lot more flexibility to do all sorts of things. But obviously it required a lot more processing to do that as well. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if anyone was going to do something that technically impressive in the arcades at that point in time, it was going to be Sega. So Yeah, I mean, I mean so like because of that construction, the extreme level of verticality to the tracks in yes. Power Drift is unlike any of these other games we've discussed. Like A lot of these games we've discussed, as they became more sophisticated, they did add some dips and hills. Yes. But, like, Power Drift has straight-up climbs and ramps and, like, pits and jumps. Like... An act and like verticality is an actual part of the gameplay, an integral part of the gameplay, which yes. is not a part of pretty much any of the other games we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pa- Power Drift had absolutely atrocious home ports, as you could probably imagine. So I'm the sure. Game was, was that technically impressive in the arcades? Yeah, this was one of those games where the arcade was just like it, just like went to the ST and Amiga and just went, uh, nope. <laughs> yeah. the saturn version's fantastic yes yes that 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 one's probably emulating the arcade version but yeah the yeah it, it just wasn't possible to make this work on home computers at the time i mean they tried and it was a valiant yeah, effort yeah, it just yeah. it was just awful yeah, not, <laughs> not in the late 80s certainly no no console could have touched this yeah but yeah, this is this is a, a cool one, and there's actually sort of been a few different spins on this over the years as well. So there was uh, a, a fairly independent attempt um, by, I think, a British developer um, to kind of recreate the the, the power drift experience, uh, but on a game that was specifically designed for home computers. Um, and that game is called Driving Force. Uh, I'm just looking up who that was made by, actually. Um, because this this sticks in my mind for a very specific reason, not because it was a particularly good game, um, but because um, it was the one and only time that I have phoned into a Saturday morning kids TV show because I really wanted to win a copy. <laughs> um, but yeah, Driving Force um, kind of adopted the same approach as Power Drift in that it constructed its its track out of sprites. Um, again. Um, the hardware of the time wasn't really up to it but driving force was actually marginally better than power drift was so it, mm. it it ran at a reasonable a reasonable frame rate but it still kind of looked a bit like ass and didn't really play very well but, <laughs> um again sure. it was a valiant effort and it was better than it was better than the port of power drift which wasn't saying a great deal but uh yeah yeah so um that one sticks in my mind like i say not because of any particular fondness for the game or anything because i played it since i tried to win it on motormouth that one saturday morning um and realized that i was probably better off without it so but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there we go anyway yeah power drift is, is super cool there's also a pc game um oh what's it called it's called something like world rally oh okay uh world rally fever um that's actually now available on gog.com and this is basically uh, someone doing a slightly more modern power drift properly. Mm. Uh, so this this one came out in 1996. It was done by Team 17, um, and th- this one this one is a lot closer to what Power Drift offered. Uh, this one is actually sort of a, a genuinely good game. Um, 
so yeah if, if you want a sort of spiritual successor to power drift then then that one's well worth checking out yeah. I, th- I think that one by that point they were actually using proper polygons but the the, the oh. overall feel of it the overall feel of it is very much like power drift so it's still got sort of these yeah. these weird sort of buggy like vehicles and caricatures for characters and so on so that's neat if if you have a 3ds you can get power drift um it was on that sega collection that came out a few years ago oh really so that's it's still it's still quite accessible oh, okay that's cool yeah yeah i, I, I yeah I, I actually didn't know that i thought that was uh power drift was one of those games that sort of vanished into the mists of time but that's yeah that's good to know that there's a no, it's, modern uh, version you can i can't can remember the name of that sega collection but it uh Sega Classics, maybe. Oh, is it the, yeah, the Sega yeah, 3D Classics? Yeah, Sega 3D Classics collection. So it has mm. like Sonic and Puyo, Altered Beast, Power Drift. Oh, right. Yes, yes. There was a good version of Outrun among those as well. Yeah, yeah. Those were all really good ports. I think those were some of the ports that sort of really brought M2 to the attention of a lot of people. Yeah, because these were such solid ports of these games with a lot of sort of added features to them as well. So, for example, the the port they did of Outrun in that it sort of simulated the the sit down hydraulic cabinets tilting, so like as oh, you were playing cool. as you were playing Outrun on that it would actually tilt the screen as you were going around the corners and so on that was really cool. This is uh, a great yeah, collection. Yeah, I forgot that uh, Paradrift was part of that, but yeah, that's uh, why do I not own this? Galaxy Force Two is on this. Why do I not? Yeah, own I'm lo- this? I'm looking at this. Why why do I not own this either? Um, yeah, I might have to look into that. <laughs> Man. Yeah, is it? There's a lot of stuff in there that you would like, yeah, and stuff that I would like. Is that yeah? It's got th- several versions of Fantasy Zone. Oh, I Puyo love Puyo Fantasy Zone. Sonic the Hedgehog, Thunderblade. Yeah, cool. Anyway, I digress. To um, eBay <laughs> <laughs> after payday. <laughs> I am. All right, continuing on uh, our journey through time. The next one I got on my list is uh, Super Monaco GP. So, as the name suggests, this was a um, a successor to monaco gp which we talked about right at the beginning um completely different type of game uh this one uh again was sort of taking a very simulation type approach this one was noteworthy for being uh one of i think one of the first arcade games one of the first arcade racing games which exclusively unfolded from a first person perspective instead of the third person one we've seen up until now yeah yeah um and so in this one uh, this this was an f1 racing game so you were very low to the ground so there was a very good sensation of speed um this was the first game to have a rear view mirror as well uh, was it which, that's that's the only note i have is super yeah. monaco G- gp rear view mirror what like that's all that's my <laughs> that's that's my note it was awesome yeah, yeah. um yeah, and uh, this was also interesting from the perspective that the home port was actually, in terms of structure and content, superior to the arcade game. So the original arcade game actually only had one track uh, mm. that uh, was only sort of spiritually inspired by the Monaco F1 circuit. It just had some of the same features, but the layout was completely different. Uh, but the Mega Drive port had a whole world championship mode with lots of different tracks in it and sort of a progression system and being able to move to different teams and that sort of thing. Um and in fact, the Mega Drive version was so good that I, I don't know if you remember the Sega's Megatech system in the arcades, which was basically a Mega Drive in an arcade cabinet. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But they actually released Super, the Mega Drive version of Super Monaco GP in the arcades via that Megatech system in 1990, so um, sort of people could get that more substantial experience in the arcades with the that's cool. sort of fancy hardware. So that's that's really cool. I haven't played Super Monaco GP a whole ton, um, but it's it's one that's sort of very well respected 
um, from the period, and there were a lot of there were a lot of clones of it for home computers. So um, there are games like um, there was a game called Vroom on Atari ST that was basically a, a, a complete ripoff of Super Monaco GP. But I remember that being very well regarded. Um, some of the stuff that Jeff Crammond made as well it sort of looks very much like Super Monaco GP. Uh, so Jeff Crammond, if you're unfamiliar, he he initially did games like Revs for the BBC Micro, which was one of the first proper true 3D racing games, more of a racing simulation, really. And he then went on to make um, some of the first licensed Formula One games. Again, very sim-heavy, but um, yeah, I, I think he, he took a fair amount of inspiration from Super Monaco GP in terms of presentation and how uh, the game was sort of set up. Um, yeah, so I don't have a huge amount to say about that, um, but it is worth mentioning because it was sort of a very, very important game in the evolution of the genre. Um, moving on, the next one I've got is from 1990, which is Lotus Esprit Turbo Challenge. Uh, this was um, this wasn't an arcade game. This was a very heavily arcade-inspired game for home computers. So it's most well known in its Atari ST and Amiga versions, followed by the Mega Drive version. Um, but sort of certainly over here in the UK where it was developed, it was the, the home computer version that it's, it's most well regarded as. So um, this actually had three three games in total over the course of a few years. So the first game was lap-based racing, so you were um, against a pack of 20 opponents. The second game adopted a more outrun-style format, so you were racing against the clock and trying to reach checkpoints. Uh, and the third game, you could actually choose between both styles. So you could you could do either lap-based racing against a pack of opponents, or you could do um, racing against the countdown clock. And the third game also had a course generator, so you could get it to create random courses for you. Now, um, this this was a, a cool game, assuming assuming you like that style of racing. Again, it's probably a bit sporty for you, but um, this was noteworthy for having a very good two-player mode. So. The original oh. game was specifically designed to be played two players. So, like, even when you were playing single player, you still had a split screen view. Uh, just the bottom, the bottom view was taken up by sort of like the the other racer in the pits. But yeah, this this was really well regarded for its two player mode, uh, running really well in in two player. You could actually play it with up to four people as well because you could link an ST and Amiga uh, or any combination thereof together using. Um, serial cables to actually do rudimentary network racing with this as well wow. and so um yeah so so this was this was an early an early game that sort of occasionally brought offices to a standstill if they were making use of those computers to do their work on um but i found this game interesting because it's got a distinctly kind of british attitude to the whole thing so like outrun if we look back at outrun outrun is a very sort of idealized view of driving a fast car across various environments it's all it's all sort of blue skies and beautiful colors and the weather's always good and that sort of thing in Legends of Priest Turbo Challenge you're driving through sort of dirty gray and brown environments there's often roadworks in the way <laughs> it starts raining you get in the fog it's, it's very British in terms of its <laughs> in terms of its attitude and it's it, it yeah it's it, it's just sort of it's not sort of trying to be funny or anything about it it's just a distinctly British attitude to that it's like I can't think of any other racing game where like oh there's roadworks on this course while you're racing and it's just right. like half the road's been dug up and it's just that's just such a sort of British thing to sort of shrug it off and it's like oh well I suppose we suppose we better get on with it anyway um and yeah you just happen to be racing these very nice cars around it um 
yeah so so these are cool games that actually still stand up very well today i i actually tried um the first lotus esprit turbo challenge this morning in fact just to just to see if it still holds up and it, it still does hold up very well um so they're worth checking out and there's a good mega drive version of i think lotus 2 and lotus 3 um okay. so so have a look at those if you want alternatively um you could fast forward two years and play top gear on the super nes which is basically uh lotus esprit turbo challenge without any lotuses in it mm. um because um yeah so so this was again developed by gremlin graphics uh, but it was released by chemco so it's primarily known as a chemco game today but yeah it was it was gremlin graphics who actually developed it that's um, interesting yeah chemco and being it, a japanese publisher but yeah so being I, a british developer it's not this is not something you see often you don't often see a japanese no. i mean these days with squaresoft owning ubi i mean not ubisoft uh, crystal dynamics and stuff you, we see it often but like back in those days this was not something that happened a whole heck of a lot yeah so i'm, I'm not entirely sure of the story of how that happened really because there's there's not a a ton of information about how that that came to be um but yeah yeah that, that that is what happened with that original one it was developed by gremlin released by chemco um it actually reuses a lot of stuff from latest turbo challenge uh but sort of kind of remastered for the super nes so it uses a lot of the same music tracks for example but they've been sort of recomposed and redesigned to take advantage of the super nes sound chip i really um, enjoy but- the music in the top gear games yeah, yeah, Top Gear is Top Gear is really fun uh, because although it's it's sort of quite a sporty racer, it doesn't take itself seriously at all. It's very fast. It's got sort of nitro boosts and stuff in it. Uh, you driver sort of shouts things out the window when he's um, crashing into people or or um, firing off his turbos and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's got a really nice kind of breezy atmosphere to it, and it's it's really speedy as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's a real sort of real sort of thrill ride and that went on to spawn quite a long series that continued up until i think the ps2 era there've been top gear games um i think after the second one gremlin stopped being involved and it was an exclusively mm. chemco thing but um yeah there's some interesting games along the way there's two rally games on the n64 that are pretty good um there is top gear overdrive on the n64 i think and then there's one on the ps2 that i can't remember the name of Mm. Uh, but yeah this this actually went on to be quite a long series and this first game specifically was very popular in brazil um so much so that uh horizon chase that came out quite recently um the developers of that who are from brazil they specifically cited top gear as an inspiration for that game I believe and that. in fact and in fact uh horizon chase incorporates music by a guy called barry leach who was the guy who did music for top gear so oh it's all nicely come full circle um for them so yeah if you enjoy top gear you should probably check out horizon chase which i still need to do actually they were supposed yeah. to be doing a physical release of that weren't they but uh yeah I does that so. happen yet i don't know yeah it's possible but, uh, yeah, Horizon Chase I haven't played at all yet, actually, but um, it's it's one I do want to check out because I know it's it's very sort of true to the stuff we've been talking about today. Okay. I um, think, too, if we're going to talk about Top Gear, I think we should just give a, give a subtle nod to Gremlin in general mm-hmm. because Gremlin doesn't exist anymore, but most of Gremlin is now Sumo, and Sumo makes uh, amazing Sonic kart racing games. Yes, yes. So like, yeah, yes. that through line historically is pretty amazing. These guys are still around and still making really fun racers. Yes, yes, absolutely. So so yeah, yeah, a lot of the people who were originally involved with Gremlin who 
we're a company who were kind of a, a real prominent part of the British games development scene from about 1985 onwards. So they did a lot of really well received stuff on the in the 8-bit era in particular. Uh, today they're probably most well remembered for the Lotus games um, and Top Gear and that sort of thing. They made Zool as well. We talked about Zool a few episodes back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. As you say, a, a lot of the people who worked at Gremlin are now at Sumo Digital, so they, they're kind of continuing that legacy there. Um, yeah. So I, I actually only learned that quite recently. I think I was writing about. I can't remember what. I think I was writing about Team Sonic Racing or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. I, I did. I did some research into it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, they they are kind of still around in one form or another. But yeah, yeah. These these were cool games. Right, um, at this point, uh, this kind of brings us to the end of um, of what I've got listed for the Horizon Chasing sprite-based game. So did you, before we uh, decide what to do next, uh, did you have any more that you wanted to mention? I know there's, I think, a PC Engine one you wanted to talk about as well? Yeah, there, there's Victory Run, the PC Engine, and uh, that's kind of one of the best, most remembered racing games on the PC Engine, but like... Mm-hmm. It's just not much for me. Like it's so it's a rally game, well, which is hilarious because like on the cover art, the American cover art, it's like a sports car, and then you actually yeah. play it, and it's a rally game, um, <laughs> which is totally like a horse of a different color. But it's it's got a full five gear shift, so like yeah. I d- don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> There's just a lot of grinding noises and getting out going on. Um, it's noteworthy because it's one of the games, kind of like Top Gear, where you actually have to like buy and replenish parts. Because it's yes. not an arcade game; it's a home game with these arcade elements. So it's yeah. it's a very cool game. But uh, and if you're a PC Engine fan and a racing fan, I would definitely recommend giving it a try. But I, I don't know heck of a lot about it myself. Yeah, yeah. So this that's actually not one I've ever played before. I mean, it's, it's part of my lack of familiarity with the pc engine i guess but uh yeah no, i think you'd ter- appreciate it greatly yeah probably i'm i'm sure i would but uh yeah not one not one i know very well okay um right at this point uh i mean i'm i'm kind of tempted to draw a line there because this is a good sort of stopping point i um, agree because um from this point onwards the next one i've got on my list is virtual racing which is sort of the game that popularized 3d polygonal graphics in arcades and so i think that's probably a good point to to stop here and then we can talk about actual sort of 3d races in a separate episode because they're kind of their own thing that is distinct from what we've done here so yeah um, this is the horizon chase episode for sure i do want to mention uh you talked about horizon chase turbo and i just want to pay a little lip service to like this the modern resurgence of like indie games celebrating these vanishing point titles so like yes, specifically definitely. i just want to like give a shout out to slipstream yes yeah, slipstream for, is great. for for being incredible yeah yeah slipstream is really great it's it's one that i actually backed on kickstarter um and for a Same. while it was actually it was actually one that i thought was was never going to end up coming out because the i know the developer had all sorts of sort of personal issues to deal with and for a while it looked like we weren't going to get it but it did finally release was it earlier this year or end of last year i think yeah um 
and it came out and it was great it was a, it was a really nice homage to outrun but it wasn't trying to just recreate outrun so it's doing a lot of a lot of interesting things of its own so it was um sort of making use of the kind of popular sort of neon and vaporwave aesthetic that a lot of 80s and 90s inspired games today are using yeah um, and so it had a very distinctive soundtrack um that was sort of very different in tone to outrun so it gives the whole game a very different feel but yeah it's it's very true to this style of game that we're talking about but it's also got some sort of more modern features in there as well that make it a, a really interesting game to check out so horizon chase turbo i've seen pr- praised quite widely slipstream i haven't seen nearly as many people talking about but it's definitely well worth your time if you're into this kind of thing all right okay yeah as we say that's probably a good place to stop there so we will call that a day for now so as usual would you like to tell people where to find you online Absolutely. You can see my artwork at MrGilderPixels.com or on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at MrGilderPixels. Excellent stuff. And you can find my writing over at MarioGamers.net. At the time of recording, we're just coming to the end of our feature on the expression Amrilato, which is a visual novel that aims to teach you a bit of Esperanto and allow you to admire the beautiful sight of girls kissing. Um, <laughs> aside from that, here on my YouTube channel, we've got several ongoing series at the minute. Uh, so we've got Warriors Wednesday is now well into the 40s of how many episodes I've had on Warriors Orochi, but we're into the last campaign on that now. I've started my Final Fantasy Marathon on Friday, so we're currently playing through Final Fantasy 1, the PSP version of that. Uh, and you'll find my Atari 80Z videos on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays uh, covering Atari 8-bit games, Atari ST games, and games from the Atari Flashback Classics collection, respectively, on those. So, just remains for us to say, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.